Is Yonder Alonzo for real? How about Justin Smoke? How about Eric Young? We'll talk about unusual player performance and more with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 9th. It's show number 22 of the 2017 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. Our talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire will cover the appeal of extended DFS tournaments, the fab value of Eric Young, and a whole pile of unusual player performances. We'll have some more player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at the Pittsburgh bullpen, Anthony Rendon, Jimmy Nelson, and more, and from the American League with Jock Thompson looking at the Houston rotation, Tampa injuries and roster moves, and a whole lot more. We'll also have commentators from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Colorado shortstop prospect Brendan Rogers. In our playing time commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at a changing of the guard at third base in Queens. In our frequent flyers commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Yankees shortstop Glaber Torres and Houston right-hander Francis Martez. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ matchups analyst Greg Fishwick looks at a marquee matchup with Tampa right-hander Chris Archer, a Saturday surprise with Colorado right-hander Jeff Hoffman, and other weekend matchups. And for Master Notes, well, this week's edition at BaseballHQ.com, the print version, is very full of numbers and stats, and frankly, it sounds like hell as a spoken word segment. So instead, I'm going to respond to a few listener requests by repeating a piece from a few years ago about the history of Baseball HQ Radio and some notes about how we produce the show. And since this is a re-airing, I'm going to put it on after the closing credits, in case you don't want to listen to it again. But you should. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? This edition of Baseball HQ Radio doesn't once mention Scooter Jeanette. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. And it's good to have you. Let's start in Pittsburgh. Uh, We've been waiting, it seems like, the whole season for Tony Watson to bite the dust as the closer for the Pirates. Uh, They're talking now... Not officially yet, but it looks like he's going to be deposed after yet another bad week as part of a not-so-great season. Nick, he's blown five saves. He's only uh, got 10 saves, so a 67% conversion rate. The numbers are not good. A very high ERA of 444 is whips over 150. Doug Dennis covered this story in his uh, Bullpen Buyer's Guide column. Joseph Pileski also looked at the story in Market Pulse. This is uh, not just an, a matter of talent or skill, though. It seems like there's some element of economics coming into play. Yeah, you know, every, the, the person everybody is looking at as a potential closer in, in Pittsburgh is Felipe, is Felipe Rivero. And uh, Felipe Rivero is putting up tremendous numbers. It, it, Brandon Cruz, at the beginning of the season, talked about the potential of Felipe Rivero back in February and noted that his skills were improving. And man, have they improved this year. Right now, Felipe Rivera has 31 appearances, 
I, I thought I saw somewhere that may be among the leaders in Major League Baseball at the moment. A 0.58 ERA, a 0.74 whip, um, 173 BPV for the season, a 9.9 DOM, 1.7 control. This guy is really bringing it, and he's brought it over the last uh, the last month with a velocity of 99.2. So Felipe Rivero looks like the guy you would normally turn to for saves in that bullpen. He'd been recommended in, in Market Pulse. Uh, certainly Doug Dennis has pointed him out as one of the best non-closers currently in baseball and a guy you'd love to have in your staff, whether he's closing or not. But it, the, 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 um, news out there, the noise out there at the moment is that the, the Pirates may turn to Juan Nicasio instead of Rivero. And the reason for that is, is a pure economic issue. If Felipe Rivero is named the closer and gets a bunch of saves between now and the end of the year, his price in arbitration is going to go way up at the conclusion of the season. So he may be the closer for Pittsburgh next year, but at this point they may want to keep another year of a very cheap Felipe Rivero by not letting him have the uh, the closer job midseason this year. And certainly the Pirates, one of those teams that has to watch the pennies, and that probably does affect their thinking. But Nicasio, a former starter, of course, uh, he's no slouch either so far this year, at least. A 138, a 5 ERA, a 105 whip. I mean, those are playable numbers. Uh, he's had uh, uh, roughly the same number of innings as Watson, but he's given up uh, only a, a third of the runs. Everything about Nicasio also looks better than Watson. And if Rivera wasn't hanging around, you'd just say, well, they should just give the job to Nicasio, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, we're looking at a BPV of 102, which is uh, is uh, over that elite level we like to see for a closer. So certainly the skills, I think, are there for Nicasio to close, uh, and the economics may dictate that that's the direction Pittsburgh winds up going. And we should caution listeners that this is not a done deal. As far the uh, as far as I remember, I think Tony Watson actually got a little bit of a vote of confidence from the club uh, a while back. And uh, you know, there's only so long they can hang on. I don't think they think they're going anywhere this season, but they certainly can't afford to give away games. So five blown saves—that's a lot of blown saves. It is. And the other, you know, the the other side of this coin is that Tony Watson is very likely to be traded at the deadline if he's worth anything. And so uh, if they could keep Tony Watson in the role and he could straighten himself out and do what he did last season and look like a decent closer, then they might be able to get something for him at the trade deadline uh, as a closer instead of a deposed closer just kind of sitting in the bullpen. Even though, Nick, uh, if they were to trade him as a left-hander, chances are he'd end up somewhere as a setup man. Most most teams, for reasons of their own, don't like left-handed closers, and plus it's hard to find good left-handed setup guys. If Tony Watson were to get himself righted, um, isn't the chance pretty good that he would end up somewhere not closing games, which mitigates against kind of getting him as a stash? Yeah, you know, I think that's uh, that's uh, certainly, certainly uh, uh, an important point because... Uh, I'm not sure, given what we're looking at at the moment, unless he really turned things around in the next two weeks, that Tony Watson would be someone I would trade for as a closer where I am major league executive right now. One last thing to like about Felipe Rivero, especially if you can stash him for later this year or in a keeper league, 64% ground ball rate and that 9.9 strikeouts per nine dominance rate. That's a great combination, Nick. A lot of balls being put into play for easy outs on the ground, plus a lot of strikeouts. Very few home runs, 0.6 home runs per nine. Uh, this guy's really got it going on. Only two home runs uh, all, all year in 31 innings. 
Yeah, really. And I, you know, as you said, a really good keeper league stash, I think, at this point. Moving on to Washington, uh, Nick, uh, you have grandkids. I, I have kids now who aren't so little, but when they were little, they loved a little song called Head and Shoulders, Knees and Toes. Uh, I'd imagine you might have sung that little ditty to one of your kids or grandkids, uh, but it could also be the uh, Jason Worth injury history, couldn't it? Because he <laughs> he's back on the DL. <laughs> It sure could. I mean, you know, Jason Worth is a guy you can't count on having in the lineup very long. Uh, and he's done it again. He's headed for the DL. This time, a foot injury. Phil Hurts covered it for playing time today. So uh, who gets the playing time in Washington with Jason Worth on his latest trip to the disabled list? You know, there's, there's several possibilities. Uh, Washington brought up, uh, acquired just about a week ago, and now brought up from, from AAA Syracuse, Ryan Rayburn. Uh, Ryan Rayburn is a possibility. You may remember Ryan Rayburn is... Uh, as a guy with a low batting average and, and, and a few home runs, and he still is that way. Last season, Ryan Rayburn, a 220 uh, XBA, uh, expected batting average, uh, but a solid 130 PX and 223 at bats. So Rayburn can hit a few out, uh, but uh, but uh, can also struggle to bring the batting average. Uh, Brian Goodwin may get some playing time as well. Uh, Brian Goodwin probably looks a little bit better than Ryan Rayburn at this point as a, as a possibility for increased playing time. Uh as uh, as of June fifth, had started four straight games in place of uh, Rayburn because of the I mean, pace of Worth because of the injury uh, and because of Bryce Harper's suspension. So uh, and also the Nationals had a DH in, in some of those games. So so Brian Goodman was getting some starts. But the guy I really like for fantasy purposes is Adam Lind, uh, who has uh, hadn't played the outfield until this year since 2010, but uh, is has been out there a couple of games this season uh, and is swinging as good a bat as ever. Uh, Adam Lind is, uh, uh, as we know, Adam Lind absolutely kills right-handers. If you look at the, for this season, 66 at-bats against right-handers, 348 batting average, uh, 408 on-base percentage, uh, 1029 OPS. So uh, Adam Lind looks pretty darn good if he gets some playing time. Because of those platoon splits, doesn't it seem likely that they maybe go with Rayburn against the left-handed pitching and Adam Lind against the right-handed pitching while Worth is out? Yeah, they might. They might, in fact, do that. I mean, that would make some sense. And uh, you know, uh, Adam Lynn can't hit can't hit lefties at all. Uh, had, a, had a had a wonderful two forty batting average against them in two thousand sixteen. Uh, but if you go back to two thousand fourteen, uh, a zero six one batting average against uh, left-handers. So, not somebody you want to line up against left-handed pitching. Any chance that they take uh, somebody else in the outfield? Michael Taylor's uh, available. I think Chris Heisey is a right-handed swinger uh, like like Taylor is, so they have some options. They do have some options, although Taylor had been playing fairly regularly recently, um, and so uh, I'm not I'm not sure that uh, that he's a good replacement for Worth because he's been in there on his on on his own accord and playing decently. And, of course, uh, Trey Turner's got some outfield experience, but I don't even see a, a shortstop replacement anywhere on the roster, so we probably shouldn't expect to see Turner restoring his outfield eligibility uh, because of this uh, injury. I think you're right about that, yes. Staying in Washington, Anthony Rendon is having a terrific year. Nick, he's uh, up around uh, 11 home runs, I think. He's batting close to 300, and his OPS is over 900. He's having a terrific year, and we've been waiting for this for quite a while. And finally, Anthony Rendon, after three or four years in the big leagues, is living up to his expectations. Uh, Stephen Nickrand uh, talked about Anthony Rendon in his latest Batting Buyer's Guide column where he was doing a review of players with very high base performance values, and BPV, as we call 
call it, is kind of a uh, amalgam of all of the skills metrics that we use uh, combined and, and adjusted. And uh, boy, Anthony Rendon's BPV looks very, very solid. It does indeed. I, Anthony Rendon really hit the headlines on, on April 30th when he uh, uh, he went six for six and batted in 10 runs in, in one ball game, and suddenly everybody was paying attention. And uh, and that was not an anomaly for the month of May. Anthony Rendon played extremely well uh, throughout the month of May, uh, and really looks uh, looks as though he may have may have turned a corner. Uh, in May, Anthony Rendon is, as Stephen pointed out, uh, 308 batting average, uh, six home runs, 17 RBIs. Uh, all of that was after the April 30th uh, explosion, and a 140 BPV for the month. And he's done even better so far in June. Uh, Two home runs, four four RBIs, hitting only 278, but a 212 BPV in June. So uh, certainly Anthony Rendon may be a guy you can begin counting on at this point, at least, as, as turning a corner at third base. 27 years old, it's about the right time for him to do it with uh, just, uh, let's see, how many how much experience has he had at this point? This will be one, two, three, four, his fifth major league season with over 300 at-bats. Uh, and so it's probably time for that breakout if it's going to come. Yeah, you like to look for those guys who are getting past that 1,200 at-bat level, at least I do. I find that the age thing is a bit misleading sometimes because so much of it depends on when you started in the big leagues, of course. So you look at a guy like Bryce Harper, he will he will enter his prime earlier because he started earlier. And a guy like Rendon will be a little bit later because he started later. And that age difference, I always prefer to look at plate appearances in the majors or at-bats in the majors as the guide to required experience to, to, to predict that kind of breakout or to predict that kind of career growth. Yes, I think you're, you're right about that. And, you know, and Rendon wasn't really bad in 2016. 20 home runs, 85 RBIs, 12 stolen bases, 270 batting average, a $20 ball player last year. But uh, at this point, it looks like he could uh, could be even higher in terms of where he winds up this season. The batting average is up. Uh, certainly is going to break that 20 home run mark. He has 11 already. Uh, hasn't been running quite as much, but... Uh, Everything else looks very, very good. I was going to say he's only had five stolen base attempts and he's been caught twice, which is the kind of thing that usually will get the manager to, to kind of throw up the red flag and say, whoa, down there, big fella. You know, if you're getting caught 40% of the time, you're probably not going to keep running too much. Uh, is there a concern that Anthony Rendon won't be able to match that 12 stolen bases, which was a pretty big part last year of his overall dollar value? Yeah, I think, I think there certainly is that concern. I mean, the... Uh, uh, you're right. He's a, he, when you're caught two out of five times, the manager seems to, seems to kind of slow you down. Uh, and certainly when he, when he hit that $20 plateau a year ago, uh, 12 stolen bases was a big part of that. So my guess is he'd be lucky to get to 12, maybe be lucky to even break 10, uh, the way that things are going this season. Another guy that we've been waiting for, it seems like, for a few seasons now in Milwaukee is the right-handed starter Jimmy Nelson. I can remember seeing uh, not just last year but the year before as well. This is a sleeper. This is a guy you need to be on the lookout for. And uh, a lot of people believed it and a lot of people picked him up in uh, the mid to late rounds of drafts or spent you know five or six bucks on him and he's always disappointed. But this year, again, much like Anthony Rendon, Jimmy Nelson seems to have figured things out. Maybe he has. I mean, we're looking at uh, last year. He was just so bad. I mean, a 4.62 ERA, a 1.52 whip. Uh, guys, I think who are in keeper leagues have been, been waiting for Jimmy Nelson to do something, gave up on him and threw him back on the trash heap, which was certainly where he belonged after uh, last year's season. But uh, in the month of May, 
uh, Jimmy Nelson uh, started to turn a corner, was one of the BPV leaders in May with a 155 BPV, 2.28 ERA, 1.16 whip. Uh, his dominance was up, striking out 10 guys per nine innings. His control, walking only two per nine innings, was outstanding. Uh, and as, as Stephen pointed out, some very strong peripherals to support that, an 11.3% swinging strike rate, 60% first pitch strike rate, 32% ball rate. Uh, so maybe he's turned a corner. Uh, certainly in the first two starts in in June, he has done that. A 1.93 ERA, 17 strikeouts, only one walk in 14 innings pitched in the month of June. So, uh, you know, the only hesitation on Jimmy Nelson would be he looked this good in May a year ago uh, and then collapsed completely going uh, after the beginning of uh, beginning of June. The collapse hasn't come yet. Maybe he's going to keep that uh, that outstanding performance later in the season this year and maybe carry it all the way through the year. Well, I mentioned earlier Felipe Rivero with that very high combination of ground ball and strikeout, and this is something that so far, at least, Jimmy Nelson has also managed close to 50% ground balls and uh, nine strikeouts per nine innings, a strikeout per inning. As you mentioned, these are really solid skills. Now, here's an interesting question, Nick. Uh, We look at this performance and we think, let's get excited, but then you look at the projection at BaseballHQ.com and it's, uh, again, it's, whoa down there, big fella, because the projection is not near nearly as solid as the performance so far, uh, 406, 138. That's not so great. Uh, strikeout per nine rate down around eight instead of nine. Walk rate higher. All of these things are not as good in the projection as they are in the line. And I'm wondering at what point do we trust the projection more than the line or vice versa? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question because projections at Baseball HQ are based upon historic performance. And so um, they tell you in looking at that, yeah, slow down, slow down, big fella. This guy has not historically been this good. Um, and I don't think we generally alter those projections to account for what appears to be a breakout. That becomes a kind of a baseline that we look at and, and we say, this is what, based upon what he's done in the past, he ought to be doing. If he's doing better than that, uh, that projection will change a year from now, but it's not going to change much midseason. Uh, and, and those changes tend to be in counting stats because we've increased the number of at-bats or the number of uh, innings pitched. Uh, but generally don't change the basic underlying metrics that the uh, that the player is producing. All right, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. We'll talk to you again next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. What's going on? Well, it's been a day of technical difficulties here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast Studio. I can tell you, Jock, we had a cable uh, internet outage followed by a phone outage. Uh, Gosh, only knows what's going to happen next. But our troubles pale in comparison to those of many of the baseball teams that we're going to talk about today in the American League, starting in Houston. Just when they looked like they might be getting out of the woods with their rotation, Dallas Keuchel hits the DL with neck discomfort, whatever that means. And some early reports say could be at least three weeks uh, in his spot. They've called up Uber prospect Francis Martez, but Jock, is Francis Martez ready for the show? Yeah, you know, we need to talk about that one because that's kind of interesting, but but <laughs> a snapshot of this rotation right now should give the Astros a lot of reason for concern, even with that big lead they have. Uh, the next four or five weeks look really scary. The one glimmer of hope they have is uh, Joe Musgrove. is pro- He's projected to return on Monday. But again, he was on the DL list, 
because of shoulder discomfort and he may not be out of the woods uh Keiko perhaps not until July he's got a pinched nerve in his neck uh Charlie Morton has a lot strain he's working out in the weight room but he's still not throwing and he's not returning soon and you've got Colin McHugh still out with the elbow impingement he's throwing off a mound but there's no return timetable and some are saying he's not going to be ready until July so you got a rotation that looks like McCullers, Fires, Peacock, uh, hopefully Morton on Monday, and uh, David Polino. With none of these names ever good bets to last beyond five or six innings. They're going to need a lot of help. Um, there's uh, uh, a lot of potential upside for the bullpen to get uh, uh, to vulture some wins, but there's potential burnout here as well. So June is going to be an interesting month in Houston. At least uh, Houston can can boast a pretty successful bullpen so far this year. They have lots of options. Certainly, they've had a tremendous breakthrough from Chris Devensky working in multi-innings stints. Uh, maybe that'll work for them going uh, as they go through. Plus, when they start getting these guys back in July, it'll be almost like uh, in fantasy when you get your guys back from the DL and you can stop going into the free agent pool. Uh, let's talk about Francis Martez. Does he have any chance of contributing in a rotation slot? Yeah, you know, I mean, he's 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 got all kinds of stuff, and and obviously sometimes. Uh, prospects react differently to a major league promotions. Uh, sometimes in in surprisingly positive ways, you have better lighting, better coaching, better travel arrangements, uh, etc. But this is a guy who has 32 innings at the AAA level all this year, eight starts. He's averaged less than five innings a start, which tells you something. And a 38 to 28 strikeout to walk rate over 32 innings tells you even more. He's got a 5.21 ERA. So they're going to be real careful with him uh, in, in putting him in, in certain spots, probably low leverage to begin in the bullpen. I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, I don't think they really wanted to make this move right now. This is a move more born out of necessity than uh, or uh, more, yeah, more born out of necessity than uh, than merit. So uh, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. As soon as Martez was called up, as I usually do, I go to Baseball HQ's uh, call-ups report, uh, weekly call-ups on June 9th. They did their analysis of Francis Martez. This guy is a pretty good prospect. He's preseason number 25 on the Baseball HQ list, and he's ranked a 9C, which is a perennial all-star with about a 50% chance of reaching that ceiling. So clearly this guy has the goods, but so far this year, when he got into the PCL in particular, Jock uh, struck out a lot of guys around 11 per nine innings, but he was also walking. Walking almost eight guys, uh, nothing new in the PCL, of course, but uh, for his career, walks have been at reasonable levels, and his dominance is nine round there, nine per nine for five minor league season. I don't know. Uh, my read is that they're going to start him off in relief, maybe shore up that bullpen a bit while they try to muddle through with the uh, rotation as you described it. Yeah, that's kind of my take, too. And and keep in mind, uh, he struggled at double-A last year at the very beginning before coming on in the second half. So this is a guy who um, has not he, – he's been he's been rushed up. I mean, he's only 21 years old. Um, and every time he hits a new level, he's struggled a little bit. So I'm not really anticipating a lot of good numbers. I'd be very cautious if I were a contender and, and depending on him in a fantasy league right now. I think his long-term prognosis is very good. Short-term, not so much. And are there any other options? I'm thinking maybe a trade? Right now, internally, I'm not seeing any other options at AA or AAA. They've called up uh, most of their good bullpen arms. Um, they have plenty of position player depth in, uh, at, at both levels. I really do expect the Astros to make a trade for pitching probably in the next two, three weeks faster than any contender.
Of course, they'll have to find somebody to trade with, and they'll have to be able to offer something too. So I guess that balloon will have to go up when it goes up. Uh, a whole bunch of activity going on in Tampa, uh, all brought about because Kevin Kiermeyer has a hip fracture. He'll miss at least two months. Uh, who's the best bet for his replacement on the roster? Well, right now they were reporting before we started that uh, Malik Smith is expected to be right, recalled, and I think he already has from a little blurb that just crossed my desk. Uh, Malik's was hitting 309 at AAA and 139 at bats, uh, only seven walks and and uh, in, uh, versus 27 strikeouts. So that's a little bit concerning, uh, though the contact is good. The good news is that he he's been on a tear over the last 10 games. He's hit 359. He swiped nine bases. Uh, um, he has a 16, uh, 16 stolen bases against eight caught stealing. Uh, this is in line with his major league uh, track record. He, he makes decent contact, uh, 70%, maybe 80 if he's lucky. He might hit a little, and he's going to run a lot. Uh, he could help you if you're looking for stolen bases. I'm not certain of the long-term upside here. Brad Miller is also on the DL, which should give Daniel Robinson more opportunity. Uh, if Daniel Robertson is available in the free agent pool in your league, uh, is there any upside with him? Well, you know, he's an interesting guy in that he's always had good patience, and he's showing it again. Uh, but he's now showing less contact. He's around 69%, 70%. But more pop in keeping with what's going on all over the majors right now. He's He's got four home runs and a, and a 133 expected PX through 116 at-bats, but he's only hitting 207, and he seems to be hitting more fly balls and less line drives these days, and and, and more often than from the player. I remember watching in uh, spring training with Oakland and in the Arizona Fall League, uh, he hit for decent average in the minors, 278, and it, so it's kind of unclear where this goes from here, but uh, until we see a little more, I'd be a little skeptical of Daniel Robertson. Tampa also got further bad news. Matt Duffy, whom they acquired last year in the uh, Matt Moore trade from San Francisco is reportedly now not close to returning. And meanwhile, Tim Beckham keeps rolling along as something of a surprise from a former number one overall pick. We discussed this situation a while back, Jock, and I think both of us were a little surprised at how effective Beckham was being early on. But now he seems to be the starting shortstop and not much competition. Yeah, I expected Duffy to be back. I think Tampa did. And, and I thought Duffy would eventually play his way back into the role. Uh, I didn't think uh, Tampa Bay would, would bench Beckham, and obviously they haven't been able to given uh, Duffy's lingering uh, injury problems. <laughs> you look at his numbers, a 6% walk rate, 65% contact, uh, 228 expected batting average, and you, and you think this, there's no way. And, and then you look at his, 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 his statistics uh, through 218 at-bats. He's got a 271 batting average. He's got nine home runs. He hits, when he makes contact, he, hits, he makes very good hard contact. He's up at uh, 121 uh, hard, hard contact index. Um, I just don't see that 23% uh, home, run, uh, uh, home run per fly ball rate uh, sustainable. He's hitting lots of ground balls. I know Ryan Bloomfield did a fact fluke. He doesn't think it's sustainable. But again, uh, until he stops doing this, you've got to keep him on your active roster if you own him. The hard contact index of 121, he's 21% above league average on the hard contact, which is a combination of hardness of hit and contact rate. And his contact rate's only 65%, which means, as you say, he must really be scalding the ball on the rare occasions that he makes contact with it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and you just you look at all of these numbers, and there's such a confluence of of contradictions there. How is he doing this? Uh, it, it's it's no wonder that most of us are skeptical, but uh, we shall see. He's an athlete. Yeah, well, the the major league uh, 
annals of guys who weren't that great are full of athletes. Uh, I noticed that he's got a 48% ground ball rate, which in one way is a good thing because he can really run. And uh, statistics show that a guy who can run will get a few more leg hits enough to maybe uh, account for some of the gap between that 228 expected batting average and that 271 actual. But on the other hand, his fly ball rate's only 28%, which means, uh, boy, oh boy, you wouldn't expect a guy with uh, that few fly balls to be hitting this many home runs. Of course, uh, 28% fly ball, uh, a 23% home run per fly ball rate certainly is contributing, but that, as you said, is also looks very unsustainable. Yeah, it's a it's a real funny skill set uh, for Tim Beckham. I just I don't know what to make of it. This is this is one I haven't seen in a long time. He does have the pedigree, and sometimes it just takes those guys a little while to figure things out. He's uh, he's got good speed. Doesn't seem to be running a lot with only four stolen bases. His stolen base opportunity rates less than ten percent which for a guy who can run like this is a little surprising. On the other hand, Tampa's hitting home runs in bunches. Maybe the uh, rule is out to everybody, stop running, because you can just stand there and wait for somebody to poke it over the wall. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and like we've said before, Beckham's still going to get playing time, and that counts for something. Opportunity means a lot. Especially in single-league formats. More injuries. Uh, Toronto is just finally... Jock starting to get some guys back. Uh, Troy Tulowitzki came back. Josh Donaldson came back and immediately started bashing out home runs left and right. And just when they were starting to get things rolling, Devin Travis, who was having a terrific uh, May and early June, uh, some kind of cartilage damage in his knee and a bone bruise, could be on the DL for a while. He's kind of injury prone. Let's look at this situation for a minute, and there's not much behind Devin Travis. Yeah, there really isn't, and we've talked about Toronto uh, a lot in these podcasts simply because of the injuries to Donaldson and Tulowitzki and what it did to the offense and uh, and the lack of depth behind it. And again, I was looking back at the lineups for the last three, four days since uh, since Travis went down. It's uh, it's Ryan Goins and Darwin Barney in a platoon at second base, base which kind of speaks volumes here. This is not a good thing for the Blue Jays, and there's really not much to say beyond this. Uh, I I really wouldn't be rostering either of these names. Goins has been a little bit surprising in that he's had a, a little bit more offensive success, but certainly he's nothing to hang your hat on in that regard. Uh, Bar- Darwin Barney has never been much. Uh, Goins has never been much, but this year he started putting the bat on the ball with a little more pop, not a lot. He's uh, up to four home runs this year, which, uh, as far as I can remember, is getting close to his career highs in that regard. He's had uh, two, one, five, three the last four years. So early on in the proceedings, to have four home runs means maybe it's a function of playing time partly but could also be a function of uh, doing some things a little better but batting average 218 is expected batting average is under 240 so there's not a lot of help here from Ryan Goins this is going to be tough for Toronto in Cleveland Danny Salazar hits the DL with shoulder issues uh, perhaps providing us some insight as to his struggles of late and in a bit of a surprise Mike Clevenger was sent back to AAA and he was pitching fairly well so first of all what do the Indians do when that number five starting position comes around yeah, uh, Clevenger wasn't awful. He um, he started out, actually, his first couple, three starts pitching very well. He slipped a little bit recently. Um, I think they're sending him down for a refresher, see if they can get him back on track. Uh, part of this move here is a scheduling thing that really works in their favor over the next week. Uh, they had an off day uh, last night, which is Thursday. They're going to get another off day on Monday, so they really won't need a fifth starter until next Saturday, June 17th. But that's when things really get interesting because they have a doubleheader that day, meaning that they're going to need either two starters. They're going to need either two starters then or, or, or another one before that day, depending on who they want to match up and who they want to rest. All right, so considering that's what they need, who do you think that's going to be? Your best guess. Well, I'm looking at our team page here for Cleveland at Baseball HQ, and I also looked at roster resources. 
we only have six projected starting pitchers for, for pitching time, and they include Sal Salazar and Clevenger, so I would assume at least one of those is going to be back, and maybe both. I know there's talk in Cleveland that uh, um, uh, Salazar could use the rest, and maybe they'll get him some minor league coaching during the 10 days he's out. Uh, you also have Ryan Merritt, who uh, you'll remember, he pitched that great game against uh, Toronto last year in the playoffs. Uh, that's where their experience is, and there's not a lot of depth beyond that in the minors. Yeah, Ryan Merritt was the subject of some coverage at BaseballHQ.com recently in the uh, um, American League Central coverage, and uh, playing time tomorrow, Mike Shears said, you know, it's not that uh, it's not that Merritt is kind of the next coming of any kind of great pitcher, but they really don't have a lot of choices. He's been charged with six runs in his last uh, three starts since June 1st. Not so good. Yeah, uh, Ryan Merritt is not uh, exactly burning things up at AAA, and like you said, uh, not a lot of upside there, but experience means something, and uh, you know they need, pe they need arms to eat innings now. More pitching trouble in Boston as well, Jock. Uh, we'll talk about David Price in a second, but first, uh, Eduardo Rodriguez was starting to round really into form and looking very good, but he's had knee issues in the past. He's back on the DL with more of them. Uh, something has plagued him for last couple of seasons. What's the outlook for Eduardo Rodriguez and that five-hole in the Boston rotation? Yeah, we're, we're getting a lot of early conflicting reports. Uh, one of them has James Andrews advising Rodriguez to rest his knee for the next three, four weeks. Uh, um, he can avoid surgery right now, but uh, it's not completely off the table. He's got a kind of a strange, uh, a strange injury. Uh, he he's prone to some sort sort of some form of partial kneecap dislocation. It's been going on for a couple of years now. Um, he's going to need a procedure eventually that would shelve him for five to six months. And naturally, the Red Sox are a little bit reluctant to do this right now, given their lack of pitching depth. Uh, our own transaction feed at Baseball HQ has Rodriguez out until the end of July. I, I don't know how accurate that is. I, I don't know enough to question it. It looks like he could easily miss uh, the rest of June. Um, the Red Sox are denying the seriousness of a lot of this, it seems, um, and, and uh, he's already throwing off a flat ground. But it really does remain to be seen how, how quickly Rodriguez is going to ramp up and get to a rehab. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see him miss the next three, four weeks. You know, once those injury estimates start getting out past two or three weeks, I think it's really a crapshoot. I know that the there are estimates that are based on past experience with these kinds of injuries for other players in the same position and all this kind of stuff, but um, I would not be optimistic about Rodriguez coming back as quickly as that. It looks, uh, I would, considering his personal injury history, I would consider the likelihood of him maybe being injured a little more seriously than that. And finally, we did talk about the Red Sox staff last weekend because David Price has returned, but with Rodriguez out and Price really struggling, Brian Johnson could see an extended opportunity. He looked pretty good against the Yankees. Yeah, he sure did. And uh, he's he's been pretty good this year at AAA as well. He's got a sub-3 ERA. He's uh, he's pitching with command again. And yeah, this is the plan. He's going to take uh, uh, Rodriguez's spot this weekend. And the Red Sox will see how it goes from there. They have, obviously, they, they've started uh, Hector Velasquez without a lot of success. Uh, who knows, maybe Rowanis, Elias, and Kyle Kendrick. You know, frankly, I'd have to, I need to check to see whether these last two are even in the organization anymore, but uh, not a lot of depth here. Uh, pitching is really taking a beating this year. Not just for the Red Sox, but for the entire American League and really all of baseball. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week, and I hope the technical difficulties at my end are much less problematic. 
Yeah, good luck with that, PD. Thanks. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our regular feature, Talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Say hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back with you, Patrick. I'd like to start talking about daily fantasy baseball with a uh, different kind of twist to the Tout Wars Daily Tournament, which goes on for, I think, 20 weeks during the season and then culminates with a big final, which only the most uh, astute people end up winning. Uh, you, you won a golden ticket into the final at Tout Wars Daily. The structure of it, as I mentioned, is different from regular daily play in that the touts compete in these combined four-week segments. You total up your points, and then that's how you determine who wins the segment, and the segment first and second and I think get uh, golden tickets into the final game. How does this four-week structure affect your strategies and tactics as compared with the usual one-and-done daily play? Yeah, one of the reasons I, I, I really, really like this structure is because you can it incorporates all the different elements of DFS, or at least it can. There's the safety of the cash games, and if you're behind towards the end, you need to sort of go for it like you may do in a in a GPP tournament. But yeah, in the four weeks, my I, I play safe anyway. It's just my DNA. So my general rule of thumb is the first two weeks, I just I I, I play as if I'm playing in a cash game. I just go you know really really safe on pitchers, and you know fill in with the with the the hitters. I sort of have my own sort of process with hitters for cash games. I I uh, I like guys in the top five spots in the order. I uh, I don't stack unless stacking being taking all players from the same team unless they be individually if, unless they're standalone unless the matchup is so good on a standalone. I don't I don't worry overly much about lefty righty righty lefty if it's a bad or uh, a good hitter facing a lesser pitcher. I don't want to overlook that. And after I get done with my lineup, if I feel like I need to pay down for pitching, I go back to my first rule that says don't pay down for pitching. So that's kind of how I do the. And, and the first two weeks I'll play that way, and this is tout, and I'll see where I'm at. And if I'm sort of hanging in there and not too far behind, I'll continue to play it safe. If I'm behind, if I had a bad week in the, one of the first two weeks, I don't wait till the fourth week to do my sort of Hail Mary. I'll look at the pool in the third week. And if I feel that there are pitchers and hitters that are best set up for a Hail Mary, because I don't know what the slate's going to look like in a week. There may not be a Hail Mary slate in the final week. But if I feel the third week is the Hail Mary slate, I'll go for it in the third week. And if it works, now I just play it safe in the fourth week. If it doesn't work, you know, i got to do the Hail Mary again. So I found that out last year was a couple times having to go for it in the fourth week and saying, you know, there's no way I'm going to catch up. But there's just, I, I just don't know who to pick to, to catch up. So I started to do, well, it's only been two weeks, but that's what I'll be doing this year. So this past week, this past week, uh, this past segment, I had a, had a good consistent three weeks. I was, I think, I don't know, a tenth of a point behind for the second ticket. 
So I people were actually surprised that I went with Strasburg and Kershaw last Friday as my pitching. And how can you know? How can you do that? Well, it's because I'm going to lock in those points. I'm going to be like the golfer that that puts up the good score. And, and, and in the clubhouse and has to have everybody catch him. Now, of course, we're all playing at the same time, but my mentality was I'm not going to blow it. If you beat me, you're going to have to do really well with stress. You know, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have the top score this week. Probably someone's going to luck into it, but if you're going to beat me for a ticket, you're going to have to earn it because I'm going to put a steady score up with Kershaw and Strasburg. And obviously it worked. Yeah, you have to finish first or second in total aggregate points for all four uh, contests during right. the segment, right? You're not rotisserie scoring where you get like 30 points for finishing first, 29 points for finishing right. second. Right. And the other, sort of the other, I don't know, It's I guess it's a, it matters, it depends where you are in the standings, but new this year is we are giving out a, a bonus ticket, a wild card to the person who has the most total points over the full 20 weeks. So you, you sort of you have to decide, you know, if, if, you know, say you're third or fourth and you, you don't have a ticket this week, do I want to potentially put myself out of the running for that ticket just to try to do a Hail Mary to try to win this weekly ticket? Or do I want to just put up another score, you know, maybe not win this ticket, but still be in the running for that wild card ticket? So we're a little early for that um, as far as, and I'm not sure, if, and to be honest, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know if people are thinking in that depth about things. But um, to me, that's just another element of it is once we get closer to the, you know, we just finished the second period. Once we're into the fourth and fifth period, if, if people are in the running for that final overall win, you know, wild card entry, I think, you know, you may not even worry about winning the, the fifth period. You may feel you have a better chance to win that final, you know, whatever is the 11th entry into the, into the Tout Daily Championship. I have a question about, how the golden tickets are apportioned. Why was it when you guys were setting up the rules that uh, the winner of a week didn't get a golden ticket automatically? It seems like uh, you know finishing first in a week would give you should give you a leg up. Um, primarily because we didn't want to dilute the championship because that would you know we'd be awarding so many more tickets and it, it, you know and I think we wanted to plus we wanted to emphasize the. Um, the, the cumulative points nature Win, winning the week to me you know now it's, you're trying to win a tournament and I, I you're taking away you know some of the some of the cash game emphasis of it I think that some of the purpose of doing these leagues versus doing the tournaments is um, the the element of, of trying to be consistently good so I, I can see you know if it, if it were deeper if there were more people, if there were more people playing and it was more of a challenge to win a week, I think that would be a viable option. You know, if there were 70, 75 people doing it, therefore we're awarding, I guess, what, 20 more entries into it. And some of these are obviously going to double up because you're going to win the week. You're also going to win one of the, the period tickets. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe choosing uh, one or two weeks out of the course of the season and calling these the... I don't know what you'd call them. The, uh, you know the you know maybe the, the three point contest. You got the you got the stripe, the red and white and blue ball. You get extra points. Maybe we assign a couple of uh, of weeks. If you win this week, you get in or something like that, just to uh, 
give an extra incentive to uh, to make sure people play or 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 you know another another way to get in golden golden weeks you could call them because you get a golden ticket if yeah no there bad. you go yeah I'm trying to think I'm I'm, t- I'm trying to think amnesty week you know that remember the week when back when people used to read books from the library I'm sure yeah. you remember that they had that week where you could return the books with no fee I think they called it amnesty week I'm not sure if amnesty is the right word though it's something like that. Now, considering that the emphasis in the Tout Wars competition is on being consistent over a period, in this case, these four-week segments, it seems weird that the final decision, the final championship, comes down to a single day. Did mm-hmm. you guys ever uh, entertain the possibility of maybe having this the final be three or four days in once, like a golden ticket week where you had to play, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday on the last weekend of the tournament, and and make guys be consistent to win the overall rather than having it come down to that same kind of luck. You don't want them to get a golden ticket in, so you get your golden ticket in by being consistent but you can win it by being lucky yeah i yes it's something uh, peter kreutz and i kind of were the behind the scenes guy and yeah we, we it's not i don't know if we've discussed it but we have sort of i don't want to say laughed about but discussed how just what you're saying the sort of not, not, i don't know if it's a contradiction but the fact that yeah it, it, consistency is what gets you there but then you know you can roll the dice but then i think what we ended up saying is, is, is isn't baseball the same way 162 game grind and anything can happen in the playoffs not that that's an excuse to, to keep it that way but it was just more of a just a uh, we kind of observed that baseball you know itself with the shorter rotations and and that sort of thing is kind of it's a different the championship is a different game than is played over the 162 games but anyway i i yes i do think there's something to that I, uh, you know, I, and, and, you know, the other reason is, you know, why don't we just award, um, you know, figure out a way to, you know, just give it to the person who scores the most points over the entire season. Well, the problem there is if you're, if you're not competing early, you may, you may quit playing. So by having in segments, you know, it gives, it gives everybody a chance through the end. Like you said, as long as you play the full four weeks, you get a chance to get into the finals. So I, I do think you, I do think it's worth consideration of, 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 of uh, having an extended finals or even having a even having it like a a, a cut line sort of thing um where you you know everybody's in it the first week of the first day on whatever on, on tuesday and the top half the people the finish in the top half they then advance to uh the second one and then you know so having a, a, th- a three-step I think they call it Survivor. When some places used to have Survivor tournaments, we can even do it something like that, where you can uh, you just so make the cut, and then uh, what might be you know here I'm thinking on the fly here. What might be really interesting is not just making the cut, but you're also accumulating the points. So it's the it's the person who makes it all through all three weeks with the total points, so that when you're in that first week, you have to decide: Do I want to make the cut, or do I want to try to go for a ton of points you know you have to make that decision right away so i think that could be an interesting twist is a survivor final where it's just not the winner of the last day but the the total combined points over the three or two or four whatever days we excuse me we decide 
I think the ideal thing would be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because the, the slates are full, first of all, so you have lots of options to choose from. And I really like this idea that you've had about, uh, after the first day, it'd be like the cut in a golf tournament. You just, if you're in the bottom half, you're out. But the but your scores continue to accumulate through the weekend, and then maybe on Saturday you cut it again, and you end up down with maybe four or six guys battling it out at the end. It would be very exciting, I think, and, and very interesting. And it would create, I guess, this uh, idea of of new strategies and new ways of thinking about it, which has always been kind of the core of the Tout Wars mission. We're trying to think about things in new ways to encourage uh, readers and listeners and people who follow Tout to try things in their own leagues. Right, and, and, and you know, more thinking about it, and, and what I really like about it too is, um, not that we don't get varied slates playing you know, every Friday, but if you play the three consecutive days, you're pretty much assured of having three sort of different slates where one day you're dealing with all you know a lot of aces and the next day you're dealing with maybe one ace and the third day there's you know, there's just no aces so there's a pretty you know playing three days like that because you know having writing up these slates that's kind of what happens it, it, it would kind of force everybody to deal with all the different different sort of scenarios within the game itself to figure you know you know the, the I'm just you know I, I'm probably if there's a, if there's a lot of good pitchers on the slate I feel good because that feeds into my style and I feel that other people are not going to play those good pitchers and they're still going to take the chances not realizing that the odds say play Strasburg and play Kershaw but if everybody's in an equal boat and, and everybody has to decide if they're playing you know you know I don't know insert lesser pitcher here. To me, that evens the playing field, at least as far as I'm concerned. It 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 it, it doesn't give me the advantage. Uh, I, I shouldn't have the advantage because people should be smart enough to use Kershaw when he's on the slate. But if they're not, uh, you know, it, it it hurts me. So it forces. It, it at least one of the three days you're going to be out of your uh your 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 comfort zone playing in that manner. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire. And Todd, uh, you're, you cover the Experts League fab bidding every week at Masters Ball. And I was curious about the aggressive bidding on Eric Young. The winning bids in both uh, labor and tout were eight to 10% of the overall fab budget. So 200 and some dollars in tout and $27, I think, in labor out of the hundred. So those are pretty substantial bids on Eric Young, who historically hasn't been that great of a player. Do you think Eric Young is really that solid a fantasy asset? I don't, and to be honest, and I, I know you've had him on as a recent guest. Uh, Mike Gianello of Baseball Prospectus also writes up some of the in a slightly different form. He writes up the Fab, and he did a nice retrospective on Eric Young and what he's done over his career, or should I say, what he hasn't done over his career. So he too was, I don't say caught off guard, uh, may not have agreed with the hefty price point that the people went in. So there's just you know you've got well first of all. It seems that the outlook on Trout is improving a bit, so that's you know that's a good thing. Then you've you've got Maben, Cameron Maben, Ben Revere, and Eric Young. All I don't want to say the same player, but they're very similar players. And I just Maben's going to play, and then what's it going to be between Revere and Young? I'm not convinced that Young is going to play enough to warrant some of those bids. On the other hand, in a single for a single league format, the AL and the NL format, even for five weeks, if you're getting near full time at bats, you know it, it's helpful. So it, what it does is it, it takes these guys out of the running for a crossover trade, and 
you know, we're getting a little, we're getting, we're, we're about, we're what, a month and a half away. We're at that point now where you sort of have to decide, all right, I'm among the fab leaders. Is it worth for me to hoard and, and, and try to get the guy? Or, you know, do I just get the guy for that extra six weeks? It, de- it depends on the player. So, I don't know. I, I don't think Young would have been the player I would have chosen to take me out of the hammer spot. But I'm not going to fault anybody that does. No, I can't. I can't blame anybody for approaching it either way. I mean, at the minimum, Eric Young should pick up some stolen bases, which in uh, these leagues is turning out to be quite a tight category, which could turn out to be re- really uh, impactful on the overall race. At the same time, he's Eric Young, you know, and that's the thing that made kind of jumped out at me, especially in the instance in Tout Wars. The uh, I think you even mentioned it was uh, Steve Moyer who bid uh, 200 and $17 or something out of his thousand, which was a very big bid for Steve. And he's the kind of guy who generally is in on that end of season, uh, trade deadline hoarding. And, and this year he's departed from that strategy to, to do this. And Steve's a good player and Steve knows his baseball. So I'm not going to argue with him on, on making that decision, but it is an interesting decision all the same. Yeah. What Steve does is, is he, 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 he's nickels and dimes at the beginning. But he then sort of decides when to jump in. And it may be at the deadline. It sort of depends where your team is. And, and keep in mind, too, that Steve's the guy that basically, you know, doesn't spend – only pays for pitching because he has to. And so he, he is always constantly either trading or picking players up off the wire. So um, I think that he kind of does what his team dictates is necessary. And I think that he's you know, to try to worm out the points. He just felt this was necessary. But I mean, there there are there you know he always is through the first month. He's always sort of in the catbird seat as far as Fab goes. But there have been other years, and I and I follow him in both labor and tout. So it, you know I get to see him twice a year. You know there are years where he'll do this. Will he'll in in May come out and 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 go in on some guys. So some people think that he's the guy that holds it to the deadline. But what I think he really is, I think he goes easy early. And then kind of plays it by ear after that. But um, the thing, you know, you mentioned steals, and I know this is sort of an HQ uh, prod, not so much project, but an ongoing research item, whatever. The uh, the Angels are running this year, so there's, you know, you can't just you can't say, well, you know, he's misplaced in that team. Same with Revere. The Angels are among the league leaders in steals, so it's it, it sort of, you know, it, it fits. He he runs, and the team is running. So yeah, you probably will get some steals from EYJ over the next few weeks. When I was looking at it as a possible bid, and I'm the, I currently have the Fab Hammer in uh, AL Tout, and uh, I was facing that exact same decision. Do I make a pretty hefty bid on Eric Young hoping to get him, or do I hang on and maybe hope that Andrew McCutcheon comes over or some real, you know, studly player who could make a difference? And, and then I'm looking at, well, if McCutcheon or somebody like that comes over, when is it likely to be? Increasingly mm-hmm. in Major League Baseball, as you know, Todd, some of those trades are happening earlier. So instead of just getting the eight weeks at the end, you might get 13 weeks if they if the guy comes over well before the deadline, and that's happening. And, and you have to think about that, but you have to assume that it's going to be somewhere near the deadline. And then you have to look at Eric Young and say, gosh, if he plays the whole rest of the year, that's, what, 20 weeks or, or 18 weeks, something like that. But then you have to think, but if Mike Trout comes back, then he's not going to play. But then you have to think, if Cameron Mabin gets hurt, as usual, then maybe Eric Young will find a path through Tout's position, Trout's position into Mabin's position. There's a million ways of looking at it, that's for sure. Right, and the other sort of uh, reason why Young was called up is they had just recently sent Jeffrey Marte down 
and bringing uh, C.J. Crone back up. Now, Crone's first base only while D.H. Marte can dabble in the corner outfield, but having just been sent down to get his swing back, he's out of the picture. So if Marte gets hot, and Crone continues to hit, knock on wood, at first base, and obviously Pujols DHing. Well, the, the 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 logical spot for Marte to be brought up and play would be one of the corner outfield spots. And I know the Angels are running, but it's more because they have to. I think, you know, I think they could use a little bit more thump in their lineup. So there's just another, but you know, you you just outlined pathways for uh, Eric Young to play. There's another way he can lose playing time is if Marte gets a stroke back. Of course, Marte can also play third, and who knows, uh, you know, the the the, the, the Valbuena how often are you know he may he may get hurt too. But the point being, there's another avenue for uh, for Young to lose playing time. And you know we've talked about it in the in the Fab before. Anybody who has a hot weekend, the price generally rises. And and Young had a, a had a very good weekend preceding when Fab bids came in, so I think there's sort of a, a natural inflation for that day. So the, the bids may not have just been, I think he's worth X. I think it's well, I have to pay X because he's in everybody's conscience because they just watched the highlights of him doing this and that. Recency bias, they call it, right? Yep, yep, they do. Except my word when word processing uh, considers recency a misspelling. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, add it to your dictionary. Uh, Todd, you recently you recently published your rest of season risers at Masters Ball among hitters uh, whose rest of season projections in your system are quite significantly higher than their preseason projections were in your same projection system. I'd like to start with uh, Texas Joy Gallo, a power hitter extraordinaire. You note that he's actually produced negative value so far because of his batting average and his projection is the same. So where do you see the upside on Joey Gallo? Well, it wasn't. It well, basically the thing with with, with Joey Gallo was, um, it was a playing time thing. So the skills haven't changed that much, but just because you know he's playing more, and especially now that Beltre's hurt again, that just giving him that extra uh, playing time, the projection went up. In a mixed league, I still have him at minus seven. This is a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure where it would be today. Maybe higher because Beltre was supposed to have come back before that last one and now he got hurt again so i'm not sure where i'd be now but still the, the, the sort of the, the crux of that was he's still not mixed league worthy to me with all the strikeouts but if you can you know team context wise if you can fit him in to a, a single league format or a really deep mixed league you know he's he's he wasn't he was a reserve list coming into the season for me you know i can now see using him in al only of course you need to absorb the batting average or just assume that you're not going to finish high in the category but um there's no you know there's no groundbreaking skills analysis with gallo it was just a playing time thing and we should point out that in on-base leagues like Tell Wars, uh, joy gallo is not quite the detriment that he is in a batting average league because he draws a ton of walks yeah yeah exactly and who knows um if he's, it may, they may even, if he gets a little hot streak, they may even walk him more, because I mean, the Texas lineup should be producing more than it is, but it's not. So who knows? At some point, you know, I, I don't like to use the word protection, but at some point, Gallo may be walked more because they don't want you don't want Joey Gallo to beat you. Who knows? Another negative value hitter that you cited was Bradley Zimmer, the rookie Cleveland outfielder. You say you'd be playing him for now, but that you also have, and I'm quoting here, an exit strategy at the ready. Why do you have such a mixed approach to Bradley Zimmer? Well, he's a uh, he's he, he's he strikes out a lot. He, you know, he he's got the power speed combination, 
So it's one of those things where we've talked about it. I think when you when you do projections, there's a a big difference between you know plugging in the expectation for the course of the entire season into your little black box and if you were to do a projection sort of on a on a, on a daily basis on a per plate appearance basis so he, he's a guy Zimmer on a per plate appearance basis would probably have come out to a higher project well would have come out to a higher projection he's playing now I can't I can't tell you that Bradley Zimmer is going to be playing five of seven days from now until October there's too many players in the Q, in the in, in the Cleveland outfield in the mix and he can get into one of those slumps where he strikes out. So when I plug my little, you know, formula in, maybe I'm playing him for three or four days. But right now he's playing regularly. So right now I want him, but I don't know. I, I you know, that's why I want the exit strategy. Is he goes in one of those over twenties because he strikes out so much. Cleveland, who is still, you know, obviously trying to repeat in the division and, and still in playoff contention, won't hesitate to remove him or even send him down. So. Play him while he's playing, and not even—it's not, not even other people going to tell you play him while he's hot. To me, it's not even play him while it's hot. He's playing while he's playing, but it, he, at some point he may not be playing anymore. And I want to have an outfielder or whatever you know, utility, whatever it might be, to at the ready to put in for him. And these are the things. It just, especially th- in today's landscape, you kind of got to think about in advance, just because so many players getting hurt, the pool is thinned. So, you know, right now, maybe my re- I don't need an outfield reserve, but if there's one on Fab and my, the, my present outfield reserve isn't very good, I make that move this week because I'm probably going to need that guy in the next couple of three weeks. Just that's the way things are these days. Todd, I grabbed Marwin Gonzalez of the Houston Astros in the reserve round at mm. Tout because I thought it would be really handy to have a multi-position guy like him for injury replacements. And lo and behold, he's turned out to be one of the key guys on my admittedly pretty bad team. You say that you're, uh, again, I'm quoting, reticent to assume Gonzalez continues to play at the pace he did for the first two months. It looks like he's full value for all of the changes he's made and the uh, stats he's putting up seem like they're not fluky. So why are you reticent to assume he's going to keep doing it? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. I think there is I think there is some fluke in there. The uh, The home run for fly ball rate is huge, but his, his uh, hard hit rate is not that huge. So, and I know, you know, it could be park-related where – you don't have to hit the ball all that hard, or it hasn't done that to be scored as a, as a hard hit ball to get to the Crawford boxes there. So some of it is just contextual to the team, but you know, in a, in a, in a, I, I don't like to say in a vacuum because everything's contextual. But it's just it's just odd that he's got such a huge home run per fly ball rate, but yet his hard hit rate just is it's, it's actually below average. At least it was. This was a couple weeks ago. I wrote this. Uh, it, it's below average, and Houston's just got a ton of moving parts. They 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 don't hesitate to use them. Uh, Gonzalez, to me, it's kind of one of I, I call it the Ty Wigginton rule, where I don't know where he's going to get his at bats in March, but I just know he's going to get them. I felt that you know that's the way Wigginton was back in the day. So you know, I don't know who I need to dock injury at bats for. So I always overproject Houston. Uh, it turned out early that uh, Alex Bregman and Yulieski Guriel, or I think he now goes Yuli Guriel, weren't playing as well to the top of their game. So there was a natural way to slot Gonzalez in, especially because, you know, the, the manager doesn't care about the home run per fly ball rate. He doesn't ask how, he asks how many. So he doesn't look at the numbers. Well, I'm not going to play him today because Fangraph says that he's going to regress. Well, <laughs> he's in the lineup. So, uh, but the point being, 
if he does start to, uh, if the home runs do start to fall short, there are other options. And Bregman's beginning to pick it up. Not so much Goriel. So I think Gonzalez is safe for now. But um, I'm surprised. You're, you're in the AL only. I'm surprised that Gonzalez was even available in the reserve. Because to me, he's a, I, I, I'll bid money on him just because of what you said about the multiple eligibility. And Tout has that. They don't have free moves in week, but if a guy gets hurt, you can activate a guy off your reserve, and it and it's a short reserve, so it helps if you have some multiple eligibility within your roster to help fit. You know, if you only have an outfielder and an outfielder doesn't get in a and another guy gets you know third baseman gets hurt, a guy like Gonzalez gives you some flexibility to especially with the extra swingman spot to activate your your most able reserve and not have to match it with position. I think going into the draft, I remember my concern about Marwin Gonzalez and the reason I didn't actually bid on him during the money portion of the draft was that 2016 was his first year getting close to 500 at-bats and he was playing all over the field, like I said, which was a good thing. But when he got up to that high level of at-bats, it was his worst year ever. I mean, his batting average fell down to around 250. His on-base percentage was under 300. I think his OPS was under 700. And I wonder if people looked at that and thought, you're kind of caught on the horns of a dilemma here. If he plays a lot, he plays poorly. And if he plays well, he doesn't play enough. And uh, uh, this year, it turns out that he has figured out a way to do both, at least so far. In 140 at-bats, he's, he's looking at 12 home runs, which is nearly a career high. On-base percentage of 400. His OPS is over 1,000. Everything's going right for this guy. And uh, at some point, really, I think you're right. You have to start thinking to yourself, is it for real or not? And I, at that point, I think when you look at that hard hit rate, uh, boy, oh boy, it doesn't look like it can be as real as we'd like it to be. Yeah, it's still even, even I guess it, everybody has different ways of playing. I mean, people were you know, drafting prospects in their regular draft. For me, I would have, I would have, you know, I, I, I would have gone higher than a buck on Gonzalez. I'm just, I think it's a great pickup by you. And you said the third round or you just said the reserve round? Well, it doesn't it was really matter. Reserve. It was my, he was my first overall reserve pick. Yeah, Ryan Rua yeah, yeah, went first. He, yeah. So I, yeah. He to me, I would have been all over that. But yeah. But as far as as far as it goes right now, um, he's he's mixed league worthy in a, in a deeper mixed, I think. But uh, actually, I haven't looked at his playing time lately. But um, to me, he, he, he obviously AL only. But once you get into the 10 and 12, I don't think he's worthy. I have it minus 2 in 15, which is close enough that team context-wise or if you you have him in there because it helps you get a better player off your reserve or whatever, uh, you know, he still, he still should be on the radar in a mid-sized mixed league. Last couple of weeks, he's had 21-21 uh, tw at-bats uh, in May 21st and May 28th and 6 only uh, last week. So maybe they're... It's, it's something you have to keep an eye on, but uh, definitely an interesting character for sure. In your article, uh, Todd, you also talked about Ian Happ, the Cubs rookies off to a great start, as we've all been reading. It seems to me the problem here might be that Chicago has a lot of offensive options when Happ cools down, and we have to think that's going to be somewhat inevitable. How confident can we be when we're looking at a raw rookie on a really stacked offensive team? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you know, we have to bring it up because it's part of it. The uh, the Addison Russell situation is not resolved, and if uh, if if he ends up losing time for the uh, you know for off the field activities, that clears a pathway for Hap because that that puts Baez at 
at uh, at short, and it, it, it I think I think they'd rather use Zobers at second than putting Hat back at his old position at second base. But by taking Zobers out of the outfield mix, it it you know, opens up another spot. So without without I mean the you know, it's a, without that as a possibility, and it's still who knows what's going to happen. Uh, I think you're right in that you know the playing time with Hap is is who knows there's still I mean John Jay isn't anything great however he's defensively very good and you got to think and the, you know I know I'm jumping all over the place here because the Cubs are such a weird team but we're not we're not looking at a team that can put it in cruise control I mean I think they'll make the playoffs but you know right now they will but they're not playing as well as they think as they should I don't think they can just assume they're going to get in the playoffs their pitching is nowhere near as sharp as it was last season so it just I think that they uh, they will do what it takes to get to the playoffs. They can't leave Hap around to to mature while the rest of the team is bashing. So it is it is kind of a, a tenuous situation. Short term until the Russell thing is resolved, I think we're safe. And not to mention the Haps, who had three homers in the past week or whatever. So his, he's earning playing time just by not by 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 not going into that slump yet. And the weather hasn't turned in, 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 in Chicago yet. The, in Wrigley Field, it's going to start blowing out soon, getting a little bit warmer. So numbers could automatically, not so much automatically, but organically go up in that manner. So again, Hap's kind of like Zimmer. I'm playing him now. Uh, I feel more confident about Hap because uh, he's just a better player. I'm playing him now, but I'm not sort of uh, dismissing the fact that he could be replaced or lose playing time at some point. But we do have a 37% strikeout rate so far this year, and you mentioned that's kind of uh, a little bit abnormal for him given what we've seen in the minor leagues. There's always an increase coming from the minors to the majors, or well, not always, but almost always. And uh, even allowing for that, the 37% strikeout rate is unusually high for Hap. So maybe one of the things we have to look at, don't you think, is does he get the strikeouts more under control, pull that rate down to... 30% or 33% or something like that because if he keeps striking out at this rate a slump is pretty much guaranteed. Yep, absolutely and it depends on your your, your team too. I mean, I think we, we we talk all the time about having to readjust our baselines for, you know, K per 9 and this and that. We now have to, you know, we have to readjust our baseline what we can, you know, when we eyeball a strikeout percent. You know, it used to be, you know, 20% really really good. I mean, you know, not 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 that great. Not, you know, 20% now is wow. Which it shouldn't be what it is. So, you know, 30% used to be forget about it, but 30% now is all right, well, 30%, but what's he doing for homers? Once you're up to 37, you're you're worried. But I mean, I don't I don't get I don't I don't just throw away a 30% guy anymore where I would before just cuz if, you know, cuz the the MLB in general is is now I hate to say sacrifice and contact for for power, but I actually think it's probably is what they're doing. Most of the time, when you say he, you know, he's sacrificing this for that, it's narrative. In this case, I think it's actually fact. So, so but 37 is in that range where I think he walks a little bit, but 37 is in that range where, yeah, a slump is coming. Also, something that worries me when I look at Hap, uh, you mentioned the outsized home run per fly ball rate uh, regarding Marwin Gonzalez, 28% for Ian Hap, and uh, even though he's playing in a little bit more bandboxy type of environment, boy, that's a pretty high home run per fly ball rate, and I'm on record, as you know, that this should be home run per hard hit fly ball rate because the cans of corn aren't going out no matter what, So uh, I don't, and I don't have that information handy, but 28% still seems high. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not. It's. 
I mean, there, there are players that are going to, you know, the league leaders will be in the 28%. I just don't see Hap as being, you know, one of the league leaders. But so you're right. I think there's some give back there, which could, you know, it, it'll 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 regress. But the as we mentioned, uh, Wrigley Field pl- picks up in home run potential as the as the ivy turns brown, as we say, as it gets warmer. So some of that could be balanced by that. So there'll be a drop, but there'll just be a, a natural way to keep it a little bit higher. So, I mean, he's, he's more of a, an all-around skills guy than he is a slugger. So, I, you know, it, it just eventually water finds its level anyway. You mentioned a few minutes ago this idea of uh, context especially roster context. And sometimes a key element of value is indeed the situation of another player on the roster. And you made a case in point out of this, talking about Toronto outfielder Ezekiel Carrera. He has a slightly positive rest of season projection after a pretty negative preseason projection. The roster issue here, Steve Pierce. Yeah, and it's, uh, I think it's even gotten worse since, or well, in Carrera's case, better. Um, it, it, I, they, they didn't, Toronto didn't pick up Steve Pierce to be a platoon player, and he hits right-handed, so he'll be the worst side of a platoon. They picked him up to play, and I think, it, plus in that park, you, you know, I know they could they use PR to PR just because he's so good defensively, but I don't think you want a a, a speed guy, a, a banjo hitter next to a next to Pilar. I think you want another power guy, so that's kind of why they want Pierce. So, at the time. Uh, I think Pierce was either due back, and now it's it's extended. I don't recall exactly what's going on, but Pierce just and this to me is also one of those I don't know kind of reading the tea leaf things, which I probably shouldn't be doing because I you know it's I know numbers, I don't know tea necessarily, but it doesn't it just Pierce has that feel like he may never be healthy this year. I have no degree to say that, you know, I have no backing to say that other than have seen injuries like this before, and it just it seems like he's coming back and. You get him in there, and then he's gone. He just has the feel that we're going to be talking about a lost season uh, for Stephen Pierce next year. We're going to be talking about how you picked him up on your uh, on your tout reserve this time next year. Something that's been going on in Toronto media and the, the uh, guys talking about the games on the radio broadcasts and uh, other coverage of Blue Jays action is Ezekiel Carrera has turned out to be a pretty poor outfielder, and he's actually cost them some games. He's certainly costing them runs out there, just taking wrong paths to balls and making really dumb throws, like trying to throw home when there's absolutely no way, and allowing guys to move up to second and third. These kind of things, he's just not playing defensively very sound and, and uh, just a warning to listeners, if you're thinking about Ezekiel Carrera, bear in mind that the Blue Jays are looking for options in left field on the defensive side of the ball. I was, you know, I, I should have, you know, you'd like to think it's my job. I should be aware of everything, but you know, I will admit I'm, I'm not aware of everything, and that I was not aware of that. Though. So thanks, PD. And I mean, Toronto went through like Alfred and uh, Cicilline who got hurt, and Dwight Smith. They, they've got internal options, but they all got hurt. I haven't looked lately, but, I mean, if, if Donaldson Pompey is showing that he's recovered from the concussions and he, I know he's back to playing again, there could be an internal option. Of course, he's the he's kind of the same type of player as Carrera. He's the, uh, the speed guy versus the power guy. But, um, yeah, I can see that it, it now the, the, in the Toronto front office is aware of these things. You know, you'd like to think all 30 front offices are, but... They're not. Toronto has some good people in there. They are aware of the defensive metrics, etc. So I think that they're uh, that's that's not a good thing 
for Ezekiel Carrera. It almost sounds, I, I should watch more games, but I haven't seen a lot of Toronto play. You know, seeing throwing home, I don't, it almost, I wonder if he's trying to impress more than he is just a bad player. But it doesn't matter if he's not being smart. It doesn't really matter why he's not being smart. And to his credit, I think after he did this two or three games in a row a couple of weeks ago where uh, somebody roped a single and he had to move laterally to pick the ball up and the base runner from second was going to score easily and he and he throw, tries to throw home and he's not a strong thrower. And meanwhile, everybody else is circling the bases like crazy. And that happened two or three times, as I said. I believe that somebody pulled him aside after the maybe the third game and said, listen, you're a marginal player and you can't make these kind of mistakes. And it seems that part of it seems to have uh, calmed down a bit. But uh, boy, oh boy, just the other day, he cost uh, um, Francisco Luriano a couple of runs on a ball that he sh- absolutely should have caught. And it just went over his head. A left field triple. That's how poorly he played that particular ball. And, and that's happened a few times as well. Uh, there's another situation, Todd, in Colorado, which I think is maybe a little more interesting. Ezekiel Carrera is kind of a marginal guy. But Ian Desmond was a big dollar signing in Colorado. And uh, now that he's back from the DL, he's finding his playing time might be mitigated because Mark Reynolds is playing so well. What's your call here? Yeah. <laughs> Real quick, just to fill in the blank, um, Pompey actually hurt his leg in his first rehab back from concussion. So, forget, you know, if you're a Pompey fan, you know, don't say Zola says Pompey's going to come up because apparently he, there's a setback. Yeah, the whole, yeah, Reynolds is just crazy. Um, you know, we've we followed Reynolds enough over the years. He he goes on a hot streak with the team that he's on, and they, they play him all the time, and eventually uh, he gets exposed, he strikes out a ton, and he, he not just usually bench, he's usually released to be picked up by another team. Where he either get hot or he'll go on, you know, he'll strike out. And he gets released again. The uh, whether it be be it be it the fact that strikeouts drop in Toronto, I'm uh, sorry, Colorado, because of the the you know less you know, flatter breaking ball or or just confidence or whatever it may be, Reynolds isn't striking out. And not only that, he's pounding right-handed hit right-handed pitching. So right now he's the you know he's lock him in. He's the third. He's the first baseman every day, which takes away, obviously, one of the potential pathways for Desmond. Now, since I wrote the piece, uh, Gerardo Parra got hurt. So that helps keep keep Desmond in the lineup. I mean, the player I specifically wrote about was Reynolds. And I, you know, I am, you know, I'm not going to be the one that says Reynolds always goes on one of those cold streaks and he's going to come out of the lineup. I think there's something to striking out fewer times in at, you know in the mile high situation that's keeping that bat in the lineup I should probably have checked to see if historically he's weak on breaking pitches and therefore you know that's you know a direct correlation why he's uh, not striking out as much and I pretty I think that is because I think he's always been a good fastball hitter I'm pretty sure that is his bugaboo is the breaking pitch that's how you get Reynolds out off speed stuff and it's just not effective at altitude he should have moved there years ago um, yeah, well, he was in Arizona, which in theory, it, it's not to the extreme, but it, it's, there's altitude and the weather. So, you know, but he did the same thing there. It also could be just playing confidence too. It's just, you know, it, it, you just feel better up there. And I know we're, you know, we're supposed to analyze the numbers, but they're still human beings and he could just be going through a confidence high and, and just, you know, it could also be a change of approach where, you know, he's he's hitting, you know, not waiting in the count or, or you know, zoning it in better or something. So, but the the, per, the the point being, whoever got Mark Reynolds is, you know, if they're not if they're not near the top of their league, 
uh, it's you know they, they've had some other bad luck because he could be the uh, he's going to be in a lot of league champions come the end of the season. I think the same might be said about Yonder Alonso of the uh, Oakland Athletics. Uh, you mentioned he's the first batter in your list who's pretty much exclusively exclusively there because of improved skills. There was a lot of talk about how he rebuilt his swing in the offseason to get more loft, change his swing plane entirely, and he's certainly reaping the benefits so far this year. I guess the question is for you, Todd, how much do you buy this skills change? Yeah, and that's the thing. We only hear about the players that it works. We never hear about the players that it doesn't work. I'm, I'm pretty sure Kevin Long tried to tweak more than just Curtis Granderson, but it just happened to work with Granderson and, and maybe Conforto. So, uh, but, but it just the, uh, and to be honest, uh, it, play, I, I have to rely on some other, you know, some other colleagues and there's been some great stuff on fan graphs about Alonso and the approach. And again, the, the pieces are there because it worked and we, there's not pieces in the players that failed, but the analysis is pretty convincing that what we're seeing from Alonso is, is for real, whether you can sustain it over the course of an entire year. I mean, it's it's weird. I mean, these you know, muscle memory as it is, uh, you know, you've been doing something for whatever it is, 20 years, whatever it might be, and you change it in 20 minutes, you know, are you going to keep it that way? The same with pitchers and a new delivery and everything else. So there is, it's, it's not a foregone conclusion that this is what we're going to see. But I think that if nothing else, He's gone from a reserve to a corner infielder in some leagues from a corner to a first baseman. But I um I'm not I'm not I'm not looking the other way to put it is I'm not looking to sell high on Alonzo unless I get someone who's you know, really, really into it. Uh I'm not he's not a sell high to me. I think that the uh whatever he will fall, but with the landing point is still gonna be a lot better than people think. When I look at his line, it looks like he combined that swing plane adjustment with a new approach to plate patience as well. That is, he's walking quite a bit more and he's striking out quite a bit more. His uh, contact rate, uh, Baseball HQ's measure of strikeouts, is uh, from 85% contact last year, which is basically 85% of at-bats not striking out, down to 73 this year. That's a 12-point drop, which is pretty big, but it starts to look more like the profile of a classic power hitter. Fair number of strikeouts, quite a few walks, and really decent power when, when he makes contact. And this is absolutely a completely different shape than his career has been for the last five or six years. Yeah, and, and this is not so much intuitive or, or narrative, but um, I've always been more confident when a, you know, 15% is a pretty good contact rate. I've always been more, when I hear that a player that makes good contact is also trying to elevate the ball, I feel more confident that he'll be able to do it than I do if, you know, if, if a 30% if a, if a, a strikeout guy says I want to put loft in the ball, then I, eh, you know, maybe I think that's going to mess up his, his contact. Got to hit it first, yeah. Um, I think Matt Carpenter is sort of a different story, but, you know, him and Daniel Murphy, they both had great contact, and they're both lofting the ball more, and I think I'm confident because of their great their great eye and their great plate skills to begin with. Carpenter's weird. If it's possible, Carpenter, I know we're not talking about Carpenter, but I think he was actually talked about on the HQ forums. He may actually be lofting the ball too much because if it's not going out in Bush Stadium, it's being caught. So he, he may actually be taking going overboard as far as the um, – as, as, as far as, as, as taking this new, new – 
new swing playing to a new level. His his fly ball rate is like almost 50%, which is insane. But yet his home run per fly ball hasn't changed very much. And in, and that's not you know that might good that might be a good thing in the Great American Ballpark. That's not a good thing in Bush Stadium. Returning to Alonzo, his flyball fly rate is up from 33% last year to 51% this year, and his ground balls have pretty much disappeared because his line drives have stayed pretty stable. Oakland's not a place, you know, you better you better have a good home run for fly ball because Oakland's not a place either that you uh, you know is known for its friendly power uh, dimensions. Although this year, <laughs> it's uh, actually I haven't run the park factors for a while. Oakland's hitting them on the road too, but um, you know this year. You're not talking about you know with Healy and and all these other guys. Oakland's especially against uh, I think it's left-handed pitching are just crunching the ball. And Todd, the the one thing that really surprises me about Alonzo's performance thus far is that usually when a guy sells out for power, as Alonzo seems to have done, he's striking out more as we mentioned and he's lofting the ball more. We would expect to see a decline in his batting average, and yet his batting average is up close to 300. And according to Baseball HQ's expected batting average metric, he's full value for it. Isn't that interesting that he can manage to get both added power and added batting average all in one uh, handy package? Yeah, no. One of my you know pet sayings is home runs are hits too. So part of it is that, but even accounting for that, yeah, you're right. The there's still a you know it's it's up higher than I would expect just because a few doubles are now homers and you you know so I think that that, that it may just be that this this uh, this this elevation in, in swing plane he could just be hitting the ball harder in general. You mentioned his ground balls are down. The uh, you know maybe more line maybe he's got a higher BABIP on line drives than he should something like that. But I I don't know that I would expect. I know the expected batting average. I know what that metric says is. It's it's not lucky what he's done so far, but it doesn't mean he's going to continue that path. So I'm not saying Alonso won't finish with a 300 average, but I would probably take the under if we if we were doing a you know sort of a betting jelly belly, uh, betting jelly beans on it. Another guy uh, I have to ask about is Justin Smoke. Uh, you mentioned him at the tail end of your article. You didn't do any in-depth coverage, and I'm curious just to ask about his change in approach. He's He also is having uh, a much higher batting average, 217, 220 was his usual level, 291 this year. And again, he's actually below his expected batting average of 304. And at the same time, he's within a home run or two of a career best, and we're a third of the way through the season or a little bit more. Is Justin Smoke for real? Yeah, and I think the reason he didn't make the list, just to, to sort of quickly review, is uh, it's a difference between my original expectation and my current expectation. And so if you read between the lines, the implication there is I was kind of I was higher on smoke than some coming into the season. He's always been one of those guys that he always makes the list that another friend of the podcast, friend of HQ Radio, Mike Podhorser, talks about home run distance versus actual home runs. He's always someone we expect to hit more homers. There's always... There's always been indicators that said smoke should do better, and he's also he's also doing something different. But combined with should do better, with you know an, a tangible difference, I think it's where we're at now. And uh, I talked about not selling high. I keep drawing on Zola's dropping names today. Uh, another friend of our uh, Tristan Cockroft, who comes to the, uh, the the Arizona Forum, wrote a piece about specifically about smoke and his metrics. And the point of his piece was don't sell high on smoke. It's for real. So, uh, like I said, sometimes you can't know everything. You got to rely on some friends to to help you out. And uh, you know, I 
therefore read that piece, and now I'm repeating, I'm parroting, parroting Tristan, don't sell high on smoke. I think it's for real. And the other thing, too, though, is, you know, he's a switch hitter. but in, and So he didn't so much platoon, but they would take his bat out of the lineup on occasion. I don't think they're taking it at all at this point. So, you know, he is the first baseman. There is, there is no one to challenge. He is, you know, it, 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 the job is his. He's playing five, six, seven days a week. So that also helps that he gets the elevated playing time or the guaranteed playing time. Interesting thing about Smoke is he did not adjust his swing plane. As you mentioned, he really didn't have to. He was hitting a lot of deep fly balls. His ground ball, fly ball, line drive mix is essentially unchanged uh, from last year to this. Uh, a little bit more ground balls, in fact. A little bit decline in, in line drives. But here's the interesting thing. He's striking out 17 points less. 63% last year, 80 this year. He didn't change his swing. And I don't recall the exact uh, stuff, but he, he had changed his, his thought process in his approach, whether it be narrowing down in the zone. Uh, but, yeah, so he sort of changed his, his approach as opposed to tinker with his swing, which it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's working. At the same time, a little bit odd, he's walking less. And you'd think a guy who's being more um, selective at the plate, shall we say, would be walking more. But it could be that he's just being more disciplined about swinging at pitches he can hit. Yeah, he's hitting the one. He's hitting a ball that maybe I don't want to say he's hitting a ball out of the zone, but yeah, sometimes yeah, those sorts of things. Um, you know, it also may just it may just be a have to do with the lineup and the and the and the team. Perhaps walked you know pitched around him. I know he's not. There were so many other better hitters, but for whatever reason, pitched around him a little bit more to uh, get to a different hitter. I mean, with 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 Encarnacion gone and and everything like that, the lineup is not nearly as potent as it's been. You said in your article you were been surprised by Michael Brantley's return to form. What is your take on Michael Brantley, who has really looked very solid in Cleveland uh, coming back from injury? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, he, you know, again, I, I shouldn't be reading medical tea leaves, and I did, and I just, I, I guess I needed to see it. I guess I, needed, I wasn't willing to pay for the fact that this time Brantley was healthy. He just, he just, uh, just too concerned that it wouldn't be right. And the second part about that is, is I felt that if he were healthy, that there would be a skills decline. And the analogy is not perfect. We'd have something like a Melky Cabrera without the speed. And I'd rather just pay for Cabrera and find speed elsewhere than pay to see if I'm right about, you know, or if I'm not wrong about, about Brantley. So he's always been one of my favorite players just in general. So from, a, I just like watching him play as a fan. So I'm, I'm you know, rooting for him, but I just, I was, I was skeptical and he's, uh, he's fooled me. He's, he's basically, he's not the same Brantley that he was. Of course, we remember that one peak year that he had and he was going to fall back from that anyway. But I think where he is, he's, 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 fallen back from that peak year to where you know he's basically the player where he would have been had he not gone through the shoulder woes the past couple seasons i don't know if he's completely out of the woods yet but i you know i completely fanned on that one you know it's too late to go out and get him i don't think so you know i missed out and he was available at a huge discount so i just i i was not willing to take the discount and um you know literally paying for it now you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick david with todd zola from Masters Ball and uh, Rotowire ESPN. And Todd, you also covered some pitchers. This is a little longer ago, so forgive me if we touch on things that have changed. But one of the players uh, that you looked at was Matt Shoemaker of the Angels. You had a fairly uh, 
positive initial forecast of around $9. Now you're saying the rest of the season looks more like 4 or $5, which is a halving of his value. What's the cause here? What's the problem with Matt Shoemaker? Now we're talking the opposite. We're, we're, these are players that I weren't living up to the uh, the expectation. Again, this is several weeks ago at this point. Um, and I think I also mentioned, I think that of all the pitches, I'm least worried about Shoemaker because although I'm not a you know first, second half splits believer, he has shown the ability to right the ship before, and he was just he just walking the ballpark, and that's I don't that's just something you can't do nowadays just because it's just the uh, more more runs are scored via the homer than anything else. They're just you're not manufacturing runs as much, so you just you just don't want to turn a, uh, a solo shot into a two run shot or, or or anything like that. So if he were to get the walks under, under control be a lot better and I think he's improved it a little bit but he's still not he's still not the consistent guy that I think we all hope which is sort of unfortunate because angels have so many health concerns with their rotation he's actually healthy but he's just just not getting the job done so um, I, I haven't checked lately to see where his walk rate you know I just from remembering looking at box scores I'm just remembering that he was better but not quite at the point yet where I thought he'd be you also touched on Masahiro Tanaka, rest of season, a $13 projection after a $20 initial. This is an interesting story. There's a lot of people wondering what's going on with Masahiro Tanaka. And your analysis is pretty interesting because there's some um, contradictions in here, especially with regard to swinging strike rate. Yeah, here's here's where, I mean, the numbers are one thing, but it would sure help if, there was a, if I had a better... If I could talk to someone that knows what they're talking about, that's seen him pitch, that can better sort of explain these numbers to me. Now, part of it, and part of the, the reason he made the list is because my initial expectation was so glowing because his swinging strike rate from last year portended to a higher K per nine. So I projected a, a higher number of strikeouts than anybody else. So therefore, my expectations were higher. And therefore the current expectations, the delta between them are lower. So it's a sort of a part of it's me and part of it's that he just isn't pitching very well. But it's just the, the, giving up home runs and, and left and right. But it's, it's now his swinging strike rate is still high, higher than it was last year, at least the last time I looked, and his strikeouts are dropped. So it's, I mean, this is where I need the person to tell me, well, He's, you know, he, th this pitch, he's getting the swinging strikes on, but then when he gets in a certain count, he's going away from that pitch, and, and he's throwing this pitch, was a me which is a meatball, which is the, the part that I don't see, I don't know, and I guess you, know, you can do the research and, and, and try to reverse engineer it, but I, you know, I think someone watching, watching him pitch for a living would probably have a better feel for that. That's just my guess, is that he's, uh, I don't see not being smart about what he's throwing, but I think his sequencing, what else could it be when when you, you you you're getting all these swings and misses but when they make contact it goes over the it goes over the fence our hit our hitters just sitting on a particular pitch and he you know therefore needs to you know again change the sequences he tipping pitches i don't know so it's just so hard because the talent's there you want to say water finds its level but i don't know i mean i think you and i can go up there and and, and take one out in yankee stadium at this point well, maybe you, but I never was much of it. Well, no, not right now, not me, but anyway. <laughs>
You mentioned that this analysis was done a couple of weeks ago. I looked at the uh, current stats at BaseballHQ.com, and the swinging strike rate is indeed up, and the dominance rate is indeed up. But what really struck me, Todd, is what's what's uh, been going on with his walk rate. Two and a half walks per nine after being under two in all of his previous seasons. And you mentioned in your write-up the uh, idea that he's giving up way too many home runs, 2.3 homers per nine, which is uh, double what his previous worst year was. And uh, you mentioned that uh, it's easy to chalk up that home run per fly ball rate to bad luck, but there's something bad going on here pitching-wise too, right? Yeah, I would think. And, uh, you know, this is a concept I've talked about for years, and it's just really hard to track because they don't they don't track this sort of thing. His BABIP's up, so he's giving up more hits. And he, he may be one of these pitchers that is just so much more effective from the wind-up than the stretch that the extra hits putting him into the stretch more – is 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 you know relatively speaking his skills are even worse yeah you know you can check to see what his his splits are with guys on first guys on first and second because you can assume he's going to be in the in the stretch in the in those cases so you, you can sort of take a look but anytime you start to parse the sample then you're introducing more noise but the point being again this is where i was talking about before someone who watches him pitch would be able to tell me that he's just so much more dominant from the windup than he is from the stretch, maybe because of his quirking motion, you know, when he, he the little hesitation or whatever. So those would be my off off the cuff guesses. But it's weird that we're talking about a, a 2.3 walk rate as being high, right? I mean, how many pitchers would give their non throwing arm for a 2.3 walk rate? 2.5, yeah, but it is 2.5. But even so, even yeah. so, yeah, it is a very low walk rate. But it's it's concerning whenever you see a guy jump from uh, previous it's the relative increase, right, right? It's a 50 percent increase, which is from very very good to very good, but it's still a little bit of a concern. Uh, finally, I I noticed that you mentioned Kevin Gausman, which I thought was funny because uh, I remember talking to you in past years how you were never on the Kevin Gausman bandwagon, and finally this year you jumped aboard and uh, all the wheels fell off oh man a couple of my leagues in an al only league my plan was to have gausman as my ace and get and get matt stram and chris davinsky and because i just didn't want to pay for what people were paying for aces and i thought this was the year for gausman i'm not doing very well in my you know as an aside i'm not doing very well in my al only leagues this year yeah gausman i mean i needed to see it i finally saw it and i'm not going to say that i was right before because i you know that's kind of silly to, to kind of do that but man I don't, I don't know what it is it, you know he went out and he had that fantastic outing against the nationals in washington when the nationals were hitting everything so okay maybe he's found himself but and he, he's another one where you look at the numbers and you're not really sure it just it looks to me like you know he's either tipping pitches or his location is off because velocity's there and, and you know it, it, it looks number scouting it looks like stuff is there it just has to be location. He just and and the margin of error nowadays with these hitters is so thin that if you're not you know if you don't have that pinpoint control you're getting lit up. So it's just uh, you know paying pay, I paid for Gosman literally and uh, you know now paying for it for it figuratively. I uh, and I don't I don't see anything better on the horizon. And my 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 sort of rule of thumb it, my philosophy is I don't bench pitchers that are struggling until they throw a couple of good games. Because, therefore, you've now missed the good games that you expected to even out the stats at the end of the season. And your year-end numbers are lower than you expected because you missed the good stuff. More often than not, that works. Gaussman is a situation where it did not work. 
So I just, I, I just, I, I got burned and I kept getting burned. And, you know, now it's just trying to figure out ways to, you know, on those staffs now where I have Gaussman, it's I don't care about ratios anymore. I'm just trying to pound up wins and strikeouts and hope to get enough hitting points. Yeah, and, and uh, good luck with that. Uh, Gaussman's strikeout rate <laughs> is down to just barely over six, so he's sub-league oh. standard, and he's throwing more walks. We talked about Tanaka being up. Uh, Gaussman's up to almost four walks per nine, and his strikeout's around six. That's a really terrible strikeout-to-walk ratio. Do you think maybe we're looking at some kind of arm problem that they're not talking about yet? Well, the velocity's there, and if you even factor in that if you see 95, it's probably 96 because of the adjustments that are going on with the with the readings this year. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he, if there is an arm problem, it's not being shown. Excuse me, by his velocity. So I mean, that's one of you know not the only place you look, but that's one of the first places you look. So I don't know. It's just uh, it's kind of it's it's mind-boggling. You can't. Yeah, he's got a 362 batting average or uh, high batting average on balls in play. You know, again, there's some bad luck there, but as we've learned over the years, there's also some bad pitching. And you mentioned in the in the piece that you wrote about Kevin Gausman that uh, what really seems to be the problem is that his command and control are not what they need to be, or certainly what they not even what they have been. I was curious that his velocity was up at the same time as his swinging strike rate is down, and I wonder if maybe the issue here is a control issue, which would be elbow rather than a velocity issue, which would be shoulder usually. And um, I'm not saying that he has an injury, but certainly the the underlying root problem here is when he's in the zone, he's getting hit, and a lot of the time he's not in the zone, which means he's giving up walks. His whip is uh, almost 180, so he's certainly giving up plenty of both. Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, people nowadays sort of, you know, use control and command as the same. I try to be the sort of, you know, the nerdy definition where control is throwing throwing strikes and command is throwing strikes where you want to throw them. So the high home run rate tells me his command is off because he, he's throwing strikes, but they're getting pounded. But the high walk rate tells me that his control is off, too. So that's why it's both, you know, nowadays you'll hear in the TV, they'll say command and you're never sure. Do they mean throwing strikes, or do they mean, you know, throwing the ball in this quadrant as opposed to over the plate? But, yeah, the point being, he's not doing either. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and uh, as we get more of these new metrics and they become more accessible, I think that's that's where analysis is going to go. Being in the strike zone is one thing. Being in the meat of the strike zone versus being on the low inside corners is something else again. And uh, Todd, thanks a million for helping us out again. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Uh, where can listeners and uh, Baseball HQ radio fans find out more from Todd Zola and catch up with you? Well, I've got the uh, I've got my. You mentioned the Fab reports; those come out every Monday on Masters Ball. I do some work for Rotowire. It's behind the paywall, but it's it's well worth it. And uh, do actually, the, I just you know, I, I I talk to you. I also do some podcasts for for Rotowire. Uh, so check those out on Mondays and Fridays. And I'm on Twitter. Uh, I I don't like to answer questions on Twitter because I usually need more than 140 characters. But you know, I I will answer questions posted on any. On any piece I do, or, or you know, on, on message forums that I attend, so it's 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 not that I don't answer questions. I just prefer to do them in a in a in a in a in a, in a medium where I can sort of ask you a question to get a better answer, and that's hard to do on Twitter. But follow me because, I, I mean, I, once in a while I say funny things. Are you you do indeed? Uh, are you <laughs> doing anything uh, with daily fantasy, or picking lineups, or offering suggestions? Uh, I do a I do some ESPN stuff behind the firewall uh, for daily. 
So um, the, the stuff I do for ESPN during the day now, we've sort of switched from DFS to uh, helping out in t- finding daily daily you know in daily leagues some guys under the radar that can help keep your lineup full but i play i play the daily so i i i'm in tune with it so if someone you know if you if you do have a that's a question i could possibly you know i could answer on twitter who you know who, do you like so and so in a tournament tonight so i i am enough up on the and the dfs that um you know there's to be honest with you there are opinions you should value higher than mine as far as that sort of thing goes but you know th- those sort of quick hit answers i can do on twitter and uh, who's a pitcher you like tonight in uh, DFS? You know, I haven't – I don't know because I didn't – what I remember thinking is I don't like this slate in general, although I think I, – it's, it's, actually, it's not sales. Sales move to tomorrow. So, to be honest, this is a very – I think it's a great slate for the first night of Tout Daily just because I don't think there is anything that sticks out. So, I have – this is one that I can't do intuitively. I actually needed to sit and break down. But – um I think it's going to be fun because I I can't go I can't go my Strasburg Kershaw duo and you know just set a good score for the first week and see what happens. I think there's some risk on on, on this slate, which I think makes it fun. It does indeed, Todd. Thanks a million. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. All right. Todd Zola writes at Masters Ball, ESPN, and RotoWire. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. The Minor League Minute, Playing Time, Frequent Flyers, and Weekend Pitcher Matchups all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Now this would be the point where we usually play Ray Murphy's promo about BaseballHQ.com, but everybody's getting a little tired of it. So let me just tell you some of the reasons that BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time today, just one edition, Dustin Pedroia, roster changes in Minnesota and Milwaukee, Kyle Hendricks going to the DL, Kenta Maeda maybe leaving the Dodgers rotation. In Facts and Flukes coverage, Brian Rudd analyzes Jake Lamb, Tommy Joseph, Dansby Swanson, and a couple more. And in Buyer's Guides, all our columnists are looking at May's base performance value leaders. That and a whole lot more at BaseballHQ.com, and that's why we say it is fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. And you're a winner, right? Let's get back to Baseball HQ Radio. I am Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, and weekend pitcher matchups. Leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Colorado shortstop prospect Brendan Rodgers is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Colorado Rockies' Brendan Rodgers started the season on the DL with a hand injury, but has been red hot since his return to action, slashing 393 with a 416 on base percentage and a very impressive 693 slugging percentage. He has 14 doubles, 2 triples, and 8 home runs and 140 at-bats for high A Lancaster. Rodgers, the number 9 prospect in our preseason HQ100 list, has as much offensive upside as any NL prospect. He has good bat speed plus raw power and should be able to stick it short over the long term. As is the case with most young players, Rodgers can be overly aggressive in his approach at the plate as he hunts for pitches that he can drive, and his current 420 average on balls in play is clearly not sustainable. Rodgers has just 5 walks to go along with 22 punch outs, but has a track record of acceptable contact and plate discipline and should be able to adjust as he moves up. Long term, the 20-year-old Rodgers has the potential to hit 300 with 25-plus home runs and double-digit steals. He's still probably a year and a half away from the majors, but fantasy owners looking for an impact bat at short should keep Brendan Rodgers on their short list and he should definitely be owned in all long-term keeper formats. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scout team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Houston right-hander Francis Martez. We talked about him earlier with Jock. Tampa right-hander Jacob Faria, Milwaukee outfielder Brett Phillips, and a whole bunch more recent call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, and boy, don't we all have to do that, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for a playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at a changing of the guard at third base in Queens. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. It looks like there might be a changing of the guard at third base in Queens. As Jose Reyes' season-long slump, he's hitting below 200 with a 258 on base percentage, is finally starting to cost him some playing time. Greg Pyron reported on the situation in his NL East playing time tomorrow column this week, noting that Wilmer Flores is getting more and more playing time at the hot corner as he started six of the Mets' first seven June games at third base. Flores started off slow with some knee issues in April, but he's been flashing skills worth owning, and he's not owned in a lot of leagues right now. As of June 8th, Flores is owned in just 4% of ESPN leagues and 11% over in CBS. Flores is hitting 317 with a handful of homers in 123 at-bats so far this season. And while he's benefited from an above-average for him hit rate or BABIP at 34%, Flores' excellent 85% contact rate hints that he could flirt with 290 or 300 by season's end. And another encouraging sign from Flores has been the raw power despite just those five home runs. Flores has a 127 expected power index, which means he's hitting hard hit fly balls and line drives much more often than the league average. Remember, league average XPX is always set at 100. Flores has also maintained 2016's fly ball rate with a 44% mark so far this season. So that combination of hard contact and fly balls means we could see a power spike from Flores soon. Some icing on the cake here is Flores' position eligibility. He's eligible first and third base in basically any league format, and he did play 18 games at second base last season, so he could be eligible there as well, depending on your uh, your league format. So if you're looking for a utility or corner infielder with skills to produce and now the playing time to make an impact, go check out Wilmer, Wilmer Flores. He's a great daily play against lefties, and his improvement so far against right-handed pitching Hints that we could see an everyday player on our hands. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the site and is the director of social media for BaseballHQ.com. He also has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Yankees shortstop Glaber Torres, and here he is again, Houston right-hander Francis Martez, and here to tell you more, BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Timelines are important in June, especially when it comes to potential call-ups. So let's begin with one of the most highly anticipated, likely Major League debuts of the 2017 season. 
He may be only 20 years old, but New York Yankees prospect Glaber Torres is moving quickly through the system. And he's the first of two frequent flyers that will profile this week. After homering in four of his last seven games at AA, the Yankees promoted Glaber Torres to AAA Scranton Wilkesbury, where he's currently batting 260 with one home run and two steals through 15 games. And perhaps that's the most important thing to remember about Glaber Torres, the MVP of the Arizona Fall League, is he has only played in 15 games at AAA, and the Yankees have not given any indication of giving him an immediate call-up. After all, with the Yankees in first place as of June 9th, there appears to be no reason whatsoever to rush his development. That's why Glaber Torres, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. On the other hand, perhaps there are indications of a call-up possibly coming as soon as July, with Chase Headley currently batting only two thirty-two, and the Yankees play Glaber Torres at third base in the minors, it's entirely possible that Glaber Torres could be arriving sooner than expected. Besides, if his age is a factor, the Yankees may have to look no further than second baseman Starlin Castro, who became the Cubs' everyday shortstop on May 7, 2010 at the age of 20, skipping AAA entirely. Of course, every player has his own timeline for making his Major League debut, and in the case of Francis Martez, that time is now. That's right, the Houston Astros have just promoted the 21-year-old right-hander to bolster their bullpen. While his stay may only be temporary, according to Nick Richards of the June 9th edition of Plague Time Today on BaseballHQ.com, Francis Martez's talent is real and he should have a good career in the majors as a starter. Nick goes on to say that Francis Martez has two dominating pitches, his fastball has heavy late life, and his power curve that can get strikeouts. Plus, Nick adds that Francis Martez has been working on developing his changeup, which has good arm speed and deception, but can be too firm at times. Still, armed with a high 90s fastball and elite dominance rate of 10.6 strikeouts per nine at AAA, Francis Martez could have an immediate impact in some leagues. But as a great Nolan Ryan once said, enjoying success requires the ability to adapt. So enjoy your success, as Nolan Ryan says, when you use your ability to adapt by adding both Glaber Torres and Francis Martez, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky writes for the site and has our frequent flyers comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse, strong bets to sit. Between the ones, well, we call that the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at the weekend matchups, including a marquee matchup with Tampa right-hander Chris Archer, a Saturday surprise with Colorado right-hander Jeff Hoffman, and all the weekend action, here's Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend showcases several young starters early in their careers, and one of them is our Saturday surprise, Jeff Hoffman. The right-handed Hoffman has the top matchup rating of the weekend at 167, eclipsing even our marquee matchup man's 147. If it's not surprising enough that Hoffman has the highest matchup rating of the weekend after a sample size of only 52 major league innings pitched in nine starts and three relief appearances, consider this. Jeff Hoffman pitches for the Colorado Rockies. 
This season, Rockies starters are allowing the third fewest runs per game in the National League at 4.32. They have the sixth most quality starts in the National League with 27. And the Colorado rotation has the fifth most innings pitched per game in the National League with 5.8. The Rockies rank second to the Nats for run production in the National League, averaging 5.2 runs per game. Their much-improved pitching has limited opponents to an average of 4.3 runs per game, giving the Rocks a run differential that ranks third in the National League. Colorado is visiting the Chicago Cubs, facing the right-handed former Rocky farmhand, Eddie Butler. Butler has a matchup rating of minus 122. In a remarkable turnaround under new manager Bud Black, Colorado has the best road record in the National League at 21-10. Their 20-15 and 15 mark against teams at or over 500 like the Cubs is also the National League's best. And against right-handers, Colorado again has the best record in the National League at 28-15. and 15. The latest USA Today power rankings have the Colorado Rockies 4th and the Chicago Cubs 11th. At home, the Cubbies are 4th in the National League at 19-12. and 12. Against right-handers, the Northsiders are only 21-22, and 22, ranking 9th. Versus teams at or above 500, Chicago is a woeful 9-14, 8th in the National League. The Cubs may be the reigning 2016 World Series champs, but so far in 2017, the Rockies are the better team. Now back to Jeff Hoffman. In our June 4 Playing Time Today column, BaseballHQ.com Rockies reporter Rob Carroll rated Hoffman's recall a high-impact move, concluding, quote, Hoffman could turn into a very fruitful ad from your league's free agent pool if it isn't already too late, unquote. On May 10, BaseballHQ.com Miners analyst Jeremy Deloney projected, quote, if it all comes together, Hoffman could develop into a number two or three starter, unquote. After beginning his major league career with a lackluster 31 innings in 2016, Hoffman has excelled in 2017. He has 26 strikeouts in 21 innings pitched for a dominance rate of 11.3 strikeouts per nine. His whip is 073. Sure, that's partially due to his fortunate hit rate of 24%, which has kept his opponents on base percentage down to 176. But still, Hoffman's expected ERA is under 3. Most importantly, he's walked only 2 in those 21 innings pitched this season, giving him a control rate of under 1 walk per 9 innings pitched. And that's fully supported by his first pitch strike rate of 66%. With a base performance value of 183, Jeff Hoffman of the Colorado Rockies is our Saturday surprise. Our marquee matchup man may have a matchup rating second to Hoffman's, but Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Chris Archer has an outstanding five-year track record. His Mayberry scores, which simplify his value relative to all Major League pitchers, are 4 out of 5 for ERA, 5 out of 5 for strikeout rate, 5 out of 5 for innings pitched, A for health, A for experience, and A for consistency. Archer is at home Sunday to face Jesse Hahn of the Oakland A's, who has a matchup rating of 063. The latest USA Today power rankings have the A's pegged as the 14th best team in the American League, ahead of only the Royals. The Rays are ranked 9th. Overall, Tampa Bay is one game under 500, and Oakland is seven games under 500. Against teams under 500, the Rays are 14 and 13, ranking ninth in the American League. The A's are 12 and 15, ranking 14th in the American League. Versus right-handers, the Rays rank fourth in the AL at 23 and 18. The A's are 14th in the AL versus right-handers with a record of 18 and 25. At home, Tampa is three games over 500, ranking eighth in the American League. On the road, Oakland ranks last in the AL at 12 games under 500. The Rays are far and away the better team.
Now back to Chris Archer. He's reeled off four consecutive Peak U.S. dominant efforts, and six of his past eight starts have been Peak U.S. dominant. With his one Peak U.S. disaster, Archer's Peak U.S. dominant to disaster ratio is 62% dominant to 8% disaster. In BaseballHQ.com's 2017 forecaster, pitching analyst Stephen Nickran gave Archer a Cy Young upside. In 86 innings pitched over 13 outings, Archer has fanned 106 batters for a career-best dominance rate of 11.1 strikeouts per nine. His other career bests this season are in batters faced per game at 27.2 and base performance value at 143. Archer's expected ERA is a career second best 322 and his whip is a career third best 115. And there's no luck involved. Outside of a 29 inning 64% strand rate in 2012, Archer's 2017 strand rate of 70% is his career low and his hit rate of 32% is a career high. Chris Archer of the Tampa Bay Rays is our marquee matchup man. Wrapping up this weekend's highlights, there are two series in which one team's hitters have a distinct advantage. In the American League, put all your Yankees in for their home meetings with the Orioles. The O's two starters have combined matchup ratings of minus 428. In the National League, even Pittsburgh's pitcher-friendly PNC Park should be good for Bucks batters. The Pirates face a pair of Miami Marlins starters with matchup ratings totaling minus 261. To top it off, we have double double headers on Saturday, one in each league. You can double dip with Oakland A's visiting the Tampa Bay Rays in the American League and with New York Mets at the Atlanta Braves in the National League. Coincidentally, there are several weekend matchups with double negative matchup ratings on both Saturday and Sunday. Those are good games to load your lineups with hitters from both teams. So get your D-backs and Brewers batters off the bench in Arizona where the four starters have combined matchup ratings of minus 338. The interleague matchup in San Diego with the Royals facing the Padres won't have a DH, but you'll want to designate as many hitters as you can from both their lineups. The four matchup ratings there add up to minus 546. Activate your Angels and Astros in Houston, where the four starters matchup ratings taken together are minus 692. And your trifecta is in Atlanta's new SunTrust Park. Mets and Braves hitters should have two field days. Not only do they get the extra game with the doubleheader, but every one of the six starters has a negative matchup rating. The grand total of those six matchup ratings is minus 1623. As the late Cubs Hall of Famer Ernie Banks would say, let's play two. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, a longtime guest here at Baseball HQ Radio, a true friend of the show, and I'm glad to report a good friend of mine as well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, closing in on a 1,000 followers. 
And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes, add to our 4.8 star rating. Help us along because it'll keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday when our feature guest expert will be Glenn Colton from Colton and the Wolfman on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. That's Glenn Colton on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Remember to stay tuned for that repeat of Master Notes about Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Psst. Hey, you still there? Good. Thanks for hanging around. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion of baseball and fantasy baseball. As I said earlier, the print version of this week's Master Notes is just too full of numbers and stats to make any sense as a spoken word. So in response to some requests that I've had from listeners, I'm going to re-air a segment I ran a couple of years ago on Master Notes about the history of Baseball HQ Radio and some notes about how we put the show together. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again next week. The podcast actually started way back in the mists of time. I'm not even really sure exactly when. Ron Chandler, you might remember him, wanted to expand the HQ brand into podcasting, just as he had been a relatively early pioneer getting fantasy baseball content onto the web. We got hooked up with some outfit who wanted to produce a podcast for us. A few of us HQers had to phone in to a studio somewhere and try to do the show over the phone. It didn't go very well. We had to call in when it was convenient for them, and for those of us who had jobs, we had to sneak around finding conference rooms at the office so we could call in. Our producer didn't really seem to know much about fantasy baseball, and the audio quality was really bad, mostly because everyone was on speakerphone, which adds that awful distant roomy sound to the already subpar quality of a phone call. I don't remember how many of those shows we did, but it wasn't very many and we had so few listeners that we could probably have fit them all into a phone booth, which would have been appropriate. We started in May or so, as I remember, but we were out of it by July, kind of like the Royals in those days. After Ron canceled that arrangement, I approached him with an offer to produce a Baseball HQ podcast myself and keep it in-house. I had a background in radio production in both private and public radio, at CKNW Radio in Vancouver, and on regional and national shows that aired on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Ron is a risk taker, it's one of the best things about him, and he agreed to backstop this new podcast that we were going to call Baseball HQ Radio. In hindsight, I wish we hadn't used the word radio, because a podcast is really something different. Not better, necessarily, but different in its relationship to you listeners. Usually, a radio station is something a listener turns on out of habit, or because there are no other options, like in the car.
By contrast, a podcast is something that most listeners seek out because they have an affinity with the subject matter and or the people on the show. Originally, I did most of the production at work. I never did get employee of the month at that place. I had an office with a door, but after a few close calls with the boss barging in while I was on the air, I started booking conference rooms on different floors. I had to carry my microphone and computer and the stand and some other equipment back and forth, and I had to use a fairly big computer carry-all bag. One time, I was a few minutes late finishing my calls, and the guy who had the room booked for the next hour came in and saw all my equipment set up. He looked at it all over the table, and then he looked quizzically at me. I got out of the situation by explaining that I was experimenting with a new idea to send recorded messages by voicemail as an innovative executive communications method. Those were the days, of course, when you could get away with darn near anything by claiming it was innovative. It was at that same workplace where I recruited some of the people on my work team to record standing elements like introductions, promos, ads, and all of those kind of things. One of the guys had been a disc jockey for Armed Forces Radio or something, and he did all his tracks like he was channeling Gary Owens. Most of the rest of them tried hard, but they didn't have what I needed, such as the ability to read out loud. That effort had one big success, though, and it made it all worthwhile. I got some great tracks out of a colleague named Angela Rodriguez. We called her A-Rod, and it's her voice you hear on the produced parts of the opening segment every week. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. That segment, by the way, used to be way longer, but we've been steadily whittling it down over time to keep up with the prevailing trends in podcasts. Angela also recorded the disclaimer track for the outro segment, but when Baseball HQ changed hands, I had moved to a new city, and I couldn't get hold of Angela to re-record it. So now, if you listen to the podcast all the way to the end, the last voice you hear doing that disclaimer is my wife, Lisa. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Don't they sound great? Eventually, to the delight of my wife, Lisa, I moved the HQ Radio production facility to our house, where it has been ever since. Although, of course, we've had different houses in different places. The HQ Radio home office is now my desk in the basement of our home in Waterloo, Ontario. The structure of the show has stayed remarkably consistent. Market Watch reports to open feature interviews and expert segments. Besides me, two BaseballHQ.com staff members have been a part of the show since it started. Harold Nick Nichols, speaking of great radio voices, has always been our man on the NL beat. And Rob Gordon has done the Minor League Minute from day one. Oddly enough, even though I've been doing the show with Nick for more than 10 years, probably more than 500 shows, and he's one of my favorite people, I've never actually met him face to face. Other segments, of course, have changed over the years. Our American League beat started with Andy Andres. Then it was handled by Matt Beagle, who did a great job as well. And now, of course, it's the province of Jock Thompson. I really can't remember all the members of the staff who did regular segments. I do remember Brandon Cruz doing a bunch of different things, something different every year, much in the same way that Ryan Bloomfield has done for us more recently. And Ron Chandler, of course, did master notes for many years before turning that role over to Ray Murphy and me. Talk about a hard act to follow. We've also had a truly impressive string of tremendous feature guests over the years. Many of our HQ staff have been on the show to discuss their areas of expertise, and our roster of outside guests is a who's who of fantasy baseball experts. One guest I remember really well was Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media. 
I'd never have dreamed about asking a guy like Corey onto the show, but I met him at Tout Wars in New York, and he was such a great guy, and he agreed to right away that he would come on the show. That show, by the way, went exceptionally well and went on to win the Fantasy Sports Writers Association 2013 Award for Best Fantasy Sports Podcast. I still have the trophy. I've also had a few unusual guests. The one I remember best was an insurance agent who had set up fantasy sports insurance. The customer could insure a fantasy team against an injury to a star player. If the player got injured, the customer would recover his entry fee. Of course, this was aimed at people playing in high-stakes leagues. The agent, he was a very earnest guy. Very interesting, too. Now, I don't know if the product ever panned out, but it sure seemed like a good idea. The guest I always wanted to have on but never managed to get was former New York Governor Mario Cuomo. I'd read a magazine article about him in which it said he played in a very tough, very competitive, very hard-nosed fantasy baseball league made up of high-level lawyers and New York political figures. I sent Governor Cuomo emails and letters. I called his office. I left messages. I did everything short of sending him a singing telegram or hiring a skywriter. And even though I always took pains to say the interview would be only about baseball, not about politics, he never replied. Since one of the most common questions I get from listeners in person or through our email address bhqradio at gmail.com is how we put the show together. From the beginning, Ron and I had agreed that sound quality was going to be a watchword for our show as a way to reflect the quality of the HQ brand. We do the whole show in MP3 stereo and at a very high bit rate. Makes the show files a little bigger, but it also sounds a lot better. When we were starting out, some listeners complained about the size of the files because they took quite a while to download. But we were pretty confident that rapidly growing bandwidth would make the issue moot, and we were right. We're still sure our pod is one of the best sounding in the business. I actually once asked if we could upload a CD quality version of the show every week in addition to the MP3 version we do upload, and they said not such a good idea. I do produce the whole show as a WAV file, which is very high quality, and then convert it to MP3 and tag it with separate software. Everybody on the show uses Audacity audio recording and editing freeware. Costs nothing and it works great. Various guys on the show use various kinds of microphones and other equipment. Most of them have headphone-mounted boom mics, but I and a few others use standalone studio mics. If you're keeping score at home, mine is a Samson C01U USB mic. It plugs right into the computer. It's a really good microphone. We record the Market Watch segments the day of the show. I record myself on my computer, and while I call Nick and Jock on the phone, I don't use the phone audio. They record their segments on their own computers using their own studio mics. Then they send me those high-quality recordings by email or online file share. Then I stitch their parts together with my part, and if I do it right, it sounds like a seamless conversation. The technique is called double-ending, and it's something I learned working for CBC Radio. The HQ commentary experts all pre-record their segments using quality mics. Our feature guests are recorded on the phone, except for the occasional guest who has access to a good microphone. All our conversations are pre-planned. I send the guests' question list in advance so they can prepare. Nick and Jock send me the names of players they want to discuss the night before our calls. It's been a lot of work over the years, but also a heck of a lot of fun, and 99.9% .9 of the feedback we get is highly positive. We do appreciate it, and we'll keep on going as long as you keep listening. So thanks to everyone on both sides of the microphone for more than 10 years of success at Baseball HQ Radio. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com.